Every competitive environment has its pantheon of champions. But only an exclusive group of elites can stand above the rest and truly call themselves legend. Though we may gawk as unskilled masses in reverence at these athletic phenoms, the true measure of greatness comes from the respect bestowed upon one by their peers. Often this manifests itself in the retirement of a number, reserving it for its former's glory. Exemplary performers of the past like Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, Tom Brady, and many others have seen their jerseys hung in the rafters, never to be worn by anyone in that organization again. And this weekend, another has been elevated by his former team to join these ranks, as the Minneapolis Police Department is removing Derek Chauvin's badge number from circulation. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Against the Mob Podcast. I am your co-host, Matt Billingsley. Going to do a quick but very important ad read for the sponsors of this show before we hop into it. Public hangings for pedophiles. You guys know about them. Hopefully you are constantly supporting them and following everything that they have going on. But... It is very important to give them the proper homage that they deserve. So every quarter, these guys are making a donation to another organization that is in the trenches with them. And the Q1 donation of 2023 went to Operation Light Shine. If you don't already know, Operation Light Shine targets in on human trafficking by providing all resources required to conduct investigations, plan and run operations, identify and rescue victims, educate parents and youth, process and analyze seized data, and serve its community. But, of course, all of this is only possible with your direct support. So go to ph-fp.com to check out what they have to offer. Mr. Hangings and his team are the real deal, and when you shop there, you support them, you help them support this show, but most importantly, support survivors in real and meaningful ways. So if you're looking to put your dollars to good use, you can support the cause at ph-fp.com. Public hangings for pedophiles, turning awareness into action. And welcome to the First World, a practically post-apocalyptic, slightly mad magazine, Alice in Wonderland version of a dark dystopian reality that is frequently similar to ours. In a dimension not quite far enough away, some shit went down sending us down a dark, slightly moist, satirical rabbit hole. Our reality takes the sitter route when the leader or mother-obsessed cult murders the messiah monkey. Go check out their comics at firstworldcomic.com. Pre-order your copy, sign up for their Patreon, and stay up to date on all things First World. Get acquainted with characters like Auntie Sam, Above Average Joe, and many, many more. Get you a copy hot off the press. We will be having Doc on again soon to talk about the second issue. I've got my copy already, and you're going to want one as well. Again, that is firstworldcomic.com. First World Comic. Sit down, strain, and try not to melt. A special thanks, as always, to friend of the pod, Mr. Flirt Cheap. Thank you guys for tuning in to Against the Mall Podcast, and we hope you guys enjoy episode 83, Stand Your Ground. Yeah. 
Harlem streets, stay flooded in white powder Like those motherfuckers running away from the Twin Towers Gunshots rock the earth like a meteor shower Bowling for Columbine fear, giving the media power Innocence devoured like a chicken spot snack box Government cocaine cooked in the ghetto crack rock Corrupt cops, false testimony at your arraignment Check the check, constant struggle to make the payments Working your whole life wondering what it takes Matthew Billingsley, Logan Carpenter, and we got Flirt Sheep back on for another episode as well. Uh, we took us a little hiatus as I was dealing with moving and Matthew was taking naked bombs down the last ski runs of the season. Uh, and in that oh, time, yes. we had like, nine, like what, four or five high profile shootings go on. So uh, once again, we decided to hop on here and beat you guys over the head on exactly why it's not time to give up those guns. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of the responsibility of being a gun owner, what that means. Uh, and we're going to discuss specifically a lot into kind of stand your ground laws uh, and how those are being used and kind of bastardized and how <clears throat> we are kind of jumping the gun in some aspects uh, simply because it is being used as a defense where people now want to throw away the uh, rights that we have generated here with things like stand your ground. Uh, it's kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater simply because it's being used as a defense when we think that, uh, you know, for one, it's a, a good indication of, of our rights as citizens in this society, uh, as well as something that may not even come to fruition anyway, once these court hearings do play their way out. Sweet. Too long, awkward silence. Oh, gonna, I, yeah. I, didn't, very well. I didn't know if I, I didn't know if you were going to speak up, Flirt, or not. I was, I was giving you the <laughs> oh, opportunity. I, mean, yeah, I should have said hello. Hi, everyone. How's it going? <laughs> Great to be here on the podcast again. <laughs> Perfect. This is, this is why we don't want to take two-week gaps. We all get a little rusty around the edges here. That's hey, totally fair. Yourself, I am uh, rust-free as always. Um, <laughs> I just, I forget that people like introduce themselves when they join podcasts, uh, you know, um, so I'm just here. I'm a person below everyone. It probably, probably doesn't help that we get on and like bullshit with each other for an hour before we ever start the podcast. So the, the introduction feels clunky when you've already be like talked about uh, whatever theories of where Atlantis might've lie or, or new FBI conspiracy links that we have before we start the, uh, the senile conversations that we record for you guys or how the silverton canyon gets formed by a glacier <laughs> it's a, a oh, lot yeah. of There's a lot of stuff we've been talking for 45 minutes straight so <laughs> i didn't even realize it's that long wow yeah see y'all never look at clocks man <laughs> <laughs> he's been over there looking at his watch the entire time going what is happening on this end all right so anyway let's dive into this a little bit and, and um, kind of what spurred this for us and what we should talk about first, I guess, is uh, the Garrett Foster case. For anybody who doesn't remember this, this was the Black Lives Matter protester here in Austin, Texas. Uh, I believe it was right on Congress Street downtown where they were marching. 
And uh, Daniel Perry, who I believe was a rideshare driver, kind of turns into the traffic, uh, is approached on the driver's side door by Garrett Foster, who's wearing the tactical gear and has the uh, the rifle at the ready there. And then uh, ultimately ending in Foster getting shot by a handgun out of the window of the car. Um, so what do you guys kind of think about this case? What are your first impressions? What's going on? Uh, you know, one thing I'll say before we really get into the details of it is just I fucking hate the legal system, man. The worst thing in the world is being innocent and being in court. Um, you know, if you've got everything on your side and still having to, like, open up your life to the world, defend yourself, spend tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on legal defenses, uh, having everything single thing like in the book thrown at you that you have to, like, then pay your lawyer to defend you from is punishment in and of itself. And uh, I know cops sometimes say, like, you can beat the, the case, but you can't beat the ride. Um, you know, I don't, beating the case is almost a punishment in and of itself. So right now, obviously, he's lost the case. But even if he does get pardoned or anything like that happens, like, they've still ruined his life for, like, the rest of his life. Like, there's no right. there's back from that. And I think there's some truth to that. I mean, maybe the, the best vaulting it into something positive is maybe Kyle Rittenhouse with, with uh, the way he's being praised by the right. And I think probably a little bit overpraised as a hero for being a 17 year old kid who was probably putting himself in a situation he shouldn't have been in in the first place as a, a young man like that, who hasn't fully developed a prefrontal cortex yet. Uh, but yeah, you, you're definitely right. I mean, you can lose your case in the court of public opinion before you ever get in front of a jury and just absolutely lose everything you got, lose every connection you've got in society. But yeah, a tough place to be. this case was kind of fast tracked too. If you think about it, like it was only over in like what a year and a half, two years. I think it was like two years because uh, it happened in the summer of 2020. Mm -hmm. So a little over two years. Yeah, that's pretty quick. I mean, a lot of times your cases can roll for a lot longer than that. Um, I mean, uh, the dude for the Garrett Foster shooting, Perry. I mean, if he ends up like searching for an appeal, that could take you know another two years, three years. Um, you know whole decade half decade of your life can be gone in Rittenhouse's case I mean he's lucky he got like a Bass Pro Shop sponsorship or whatever the fuck happened after. <laughs> but I think most of us don't get that lucky man <laughs> yeah I think yeah most of us don't end up uh you know like uh glamorized and glorized um in the spotlight there's actually because um I have Andrew Branca's Law of Self-Defense book which um I, I always like his commentary and for those that are interested in like self-defense principles and whatnot, uh, here's a free plug for him. Go check it out because he does have a lot of good stuff. But in his book, he has, um, I'll read from you, I'll read this quick little quote. Um, but here's the rub. All of that freedom to pull the trigger built in the front end of our system is balanced by a massive and unforgiving, unforgiving reckoning at the back end. Beginning before the smoke is even cleared, the justice system kicks into gear like a massive steam era engine with monstrous gears and pistons to evaluate your actions under a microscope and crush you for a misstep. The criminal justice system views self-defense like a simple light switch, either on or off. Either your actions fall within the law and you have zero criminal liability or it falls outside the law and you have total criminal liability. There is no middle ground. And then later he, then he goes on to say, given that you've always thought yourself as one of the good guys, it can come as a shock to find yourself disarmed, handcuffed, and dumped in the back of a cruiser. Your new title is now suspect. Congratulations. That guy you stopped when he tried to take your life in the eyes of the law, he's now the victim. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of reminds you of some other instances we probably aren't going to talk about, but there's like, uh, what, that parking attendant in New York? 
who uh, someone came in with a gun and tried to either rob him or like carjack one of the cars there. And he got shot twice and then managed to like get the gun away from the dude and shoots the guy. And they're both taken to the hospital and he wakes up in handcuffs exactly like that. And the funniest thing is they were charging him with illegal possession of a firearm for like the time that he stole it from like the dude who was possession for 10 seconds. Well, yeah, it was possession. Um, Eventually they had to drop the charges because there was a bunch of like public outcry. But, you know, I'm trying to imagine being an immigrant coming to America and you're told in your head it's one thing like, oh, it's Wild West. You have a gun. You can do whatever you want. Um, bang, John bang. Wayne, pow, pow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> bang, bang, John Wayne. And then, you know, you're the dude who gets shot twice and steals the gun and shoots back. And then somehow I say steals. Look at me. I'm using such a... <laughs> <laughs> I'm already coloring the defendant. Um, but like, yeah, and then you wake up in the hospital. Like, clearly it's not what you were told it was in Uzbekistan or wherever the guy was from. I don't remember where he was from, but uh, something like that would definitely scar you for life. And um, that's the way the legal system always is intent on coloring people. You know, it's their goal to make you look as guilty as possible, regardless of what's going on, because that's how they make money. They have an incentive to like not read legal documents. They have an incentive to like throw evidence out if they can. I mean, didn't the DA in um, Austin, uh, wasn't one of the investigators was going after him for, um, I don't remember what it was. Uh, Maybe you guys remember the details, but he was like keeping certain documents away from like the the courts regarding the case um this particular trial yeah so the uh the initial detective investigation was not admitted as evidence where let me see if i can find it but essentially he came up with the um you know uh ver- not verdict that's not the right word but he had come to the conclusion that it was justified homicide in um i guess in favor of perry yeah, exactly. And the courts don't make any money if they find you innocent. You know, the whole right. thing is about throwing you in jail. So, you know, when you think about this way, there's like a very perverse incentive for basically everyone involved to ruin your life. And only if they act outside of their own personal incentives, are they really like, you know, doing anything that's pro-social when you show up as innocent or even someone who might have been like, not innocent, but following the law as best you can, you know, because um. If you end up taking a life, there's always the question of what could you have done differently? Like, um, I was in a car accident very recently and um, it was 100% the other dude's fault. But initially- Is that why, is that why your face looks like that? Yeah, yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> that's my story. I'm going to stick to it. <laughs> but, but okay, so there was an initial discussion about what I could have done differently, even though like I got hit and I'm like, I don't uh, I don't know. I could have just not driven my car that day. <laughs> right. I could have stayed at home. But, you know, there's a similar answer as well. If you end up in like a self-defense shooting, um, if you do everything right, there's nothing you could have done differently except die. Um, and unfortunately, that seems to be what the courts are really looking for you to do in some cases with the way they treat you. And, you know, unless you have like a good a good defense attorney on your side, you're going to end up bankrupted. Um, and obviously we shouldn't show for things, but there's insurance you can buy that uh, if you ever do make a positive defense uh, of self-defense, which is an affirmative defense you have to make, you can't just like be like, oh, I didn't do it. And then like when they finally say, hey, it's your gun, you can't change your mind. You have to like positively say, I'm using self-defense. And, um, you know, there's insurance you can buy. I think I pay like 27 bucks a month or something. And it's a million dollar retainer for a lawyer, just in case I end up ever having to be in that situation. And, you know, for someone like the Perry shooting, probably not enough. 
in all honesty. But uh, for uh, you know, regular person, it might be right, so, and it makes you wish that start, you had that. Better than none. you know. And that's the thing about insurance is, by the time that you need it, well, it's too late. You don't get to retroactively get your policy. It, you know, <laughs> you, you wish you would have bought homeowners insurance before your house burned down. It's like, oh, I don't need it, or I can't justify that. But then as soon as it happens, it's like, oh, wow, maybe I should have been shelling out a couple hundred bucks a month because now my house is burned down and there's literally no recourse I can seek. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, a, a tough swindle of a phone call to get past that insurance agent. There tend to be sticklers over there. Yeah, absolutely. And they'll they make their uh, money not paying. And they'll like let you give them all of your information, even though they know damn well you don't have insurance. It's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> well, sir, you know, uh, our, our adjusters will get back to you after you're done. I can't speak about any of the details of this case. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's uh, I love that uh, kind of H. And I think a lot of our society has fallen to the, the corporate cow tolling of like making everything an HR department, but that's a great example of it, of just like, nobody can have a face-to-face conversation anymore about, we, we just don't have the testicular fortitude to look another man in the eyes and say like, no, you messed up. This is what's going to happen next. It's like, well, I will send you a voicemail or a letter. <laughs> we'll let you know some tangential email so that we don't actually have to have this conversation. Uh, I think it's really poignant what you're saying though about, I mean, we talk a lot about the military industrial complex, but we probably don't talk enough about the prison industrial complex, which is another one of these popularized terms that I guess gets pushed to the wayside because maybe it's a little uh, more impactful for us to to talk about the loss of human life overseas and these these wars that we're starting and the potential of World War III um, when we have also like the highest incarceration rate in human history, I believe. We, we land of the free, home of the brave uh, clearly has a strong incentivized system to make sure people get put behind bars uh, to be free labor for the state, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's interesting, too, when you compare, like, the Rittenhouse case to the Foster case. You know, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, both Rittenhouse and Foster were individuals who brought long guns to a um, a protest or a riot or whatever word the media is calling it these days. And, um, you know, it's two different outcomes and two different opinions, depending on which camp you fall into. Um you know, if you're on the left, Rittenhouse should never have brought the gun there. And also, if you're on the left, Foster was in the right. There's nothing wrong with it. And, you know, it's how do you square those two those two incidences? I, I think it's kind of tough. I mean, obviously, Foster didn't get to shoot anyone. And who knows? He probably maybe wouldn't have. Um, but, you know, it's tough to tell when he's like at your car pointing his gun at your car. You know, I, I don't blame Perry for shooting him, in all honesty, um, especially since he couldn't go. He couldn't have driven anywhere, right? I mean, there's crowds all around, both in I mean, front. technically speaking, he probably could have driven somewhere. He would have had to go over a couple speed bumps, but. His girlfriend in the wheelchair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's uh, interesting what you said, though, about like him pointing the gun at him, because that was a lot of the a lot of the trial hinged on did Foster actually ever point the gun at Perry or not, because. If you, because I mean, that's kind of like the, that was the main argument for the state that Foster never actually pointed the gun at him. Therefore, he wasn't the aggressor. And there was, it was, it's hard to tell because like the video doesn't quite give us enough clear evidence. All of the eyewitness accounts say that Foster never pointed it, but however, Foster's on their side. So, I mean, how, how much can you lean on? on the uh 
on the witness on the witness testimony of the NPCs. But that's but it's interesting that you say that because that is like the entire case hinges on whether or not Foster pointed the gun at someone else. And it brings up a really interesting aspect about two-way and open carry and whatnot that I think isn't being talked about. And it's kind of like the nuance of it. You have the right to open carry, right? Um, Especially in Texas, you can open carry a long rifle without any permits whatsoever. There is also something though, that the initial act of approaching somebody with a rifle, even if it is at low ready, because that was the argument that um, they said that he's at low ready. He wasn't actually like at high ready or it wasn't, or wasn't like uh, on a on a sling pointed down. He was at low ready, and it it begs the question of of like where and how are we going to figure out these this two way debate and its place in society? Where just approaching a car, even though that you have the right to own the weapon, approaching a car with a weapon at low ready is an instant escalation in its own right. Now, it's not an open act of force. It's not going to be um, anything that is defined legally as, a, as an aggressive action or as an initiation of violence. There, I, don't, I haven't found a legal statute that will support that claim, but in the layperson, in everybody's mind, mine included, if somebody approaches me with a, a rifle at low ready, the situation has instantly been escalated. And so- It does feel like they're, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's all good. Yeah. I was gonna say it, it. It feels a little bit like one of those arguments that comes from people who probably don't understand guns very well too. That if I'm in a, a tense situation, I'm, and by no means am I saying this is exactly what Perry was in, but if I'm in a situation where my car stopped and somebody's approaching the door with a gun, and I think it's a hostile situation, I'm probably not like getting ready, Clint Eastwood style, to pull that thing out of the holster quick draw. I'm probably got this gun ready if I'm not already pulling the trigger. Cause it's like, who is this guy approaching my door with a rifle in hand, hand on the butt of it? Like, I don't, I don't want him to make the first move. I don't know how quick I am. I don't know what my proficiency with a gun is. Uh, I, well, I do know what my proficiency with the gun oh, yeah, is. It how makes much me is nervous his? is what it is, you know, like, yeah, what is, what is his intent? Um, <clears throat> I, I can definitely see that. And I think that's another tangential lesson to be learned from both this case and the Rittenhouse case of, know the situation you're in, know what you're escalating. There was a, a gentleman in Lubbock that got shot a while back on well, this, that was uh, a rough video to watch. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was, it was, was really, wasn't he like mm-hmm. trying to get his kid from his like, uh, ex-wife? yeah, I think there was a ex and there was a and scuffle. The and then he's like, what are you going to do? Shoot me? You know, the classic, yeah. classic. And he famous uh, last he was going to shoot him. He, he actually was ready to shoot him. Yeah. Yeah. But it's that it, you got to understand the situations you're in. And if you are open carrying a rifle, you need to understand that puts people on edge, even though you have the legal right to do it. And I support that. You also need to understand that when you're walking into buildings, you need to make sure people know you're not a threat, especially with active shooters going on. I mean, we have mass shootings in this country far too frequently. If somebody walks in the front of the restaurant I work at and they've got the gun slung over their shoulder, like my first instinct is not like, well, he has every right to do so. My first instinct is like, where am I ducking behind something? And and what can I chuck at this dude to make his accuracy go down if I am in a hairy situation here. Yeah. And, you know, there's an interesting thing too. I think a lot of people don't think about is uh, each weapon system has like a certain place and a certain time. 
if you're carrying a rifle and you're in a crowd of people who are like within elbow room of you, you're already in the wrong place. And like, it makes it a lot harder for you to like, oh, I'm just going to like put my arms behind my back and let my rifle dangle from my sling while it's like running into people. Your obvious first instinct is like, I got to grab this and hold it out of the way. So it's not getting like accidentally grabbed by someone. And like, you know, this ends up being like a horrible tactical, tactical decision because you're with a rifle in a place where it shouldn't be. You know, the whole point of a rifle is that people are far enough away from you. You have space. And that's, uh, it's one of those things where like, if you're going to go to a riot and you insist on being armed, bring a handgun. Like if, if I'm going to be completely honest, this is bad advice. I shouldn't be saying this. But like, if you're it's great advice. Gun, We're that. Like you can keep it holstered. You can keep it on your waist where it's like, you don't have to be holding it in a way that might be presented as threatening um, just to keep it out of like reach of like the crowd around you. And like on top of that, his his wife was in a wheelchair. Like you you got your hands on the wheelchair, you got a rifle dangling around. Like yeah, it's just a, a horrible tactical decision. And I, I hate to say it like this because the dude lost his life. Um, but you know, if you think through like the real outcomes of what your weapon system means, it ends up being a lot easier to choose the right one. Like, I mean, I have four guns here. I have a big fuck huge Mosin Nagant that I why would I take that anywhere? I can't. I have an AR-15 under the bed. Why would I take that anywhere? I really can't. But I've got a subcompact. Um, uh, sorry, not that. I've got a a, a sub. <laughs> Wait, I didn't register that one. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've got a, a sub gun that shoots nine mil, and I've got a handgun I can conceal in the waist. Both of those are fully concealable. And like my old boss would hate to hear me say this, I, I brought the like fucking sub gun to work. It, it fit in my laptop bag. It looked great. It was super fashionable. And if I had to like pull something, thought about out, expediting that two weeks notice. <laughs> oh man but at least it was concealable and you know when foster is in this situation in this crowd with like a full-on rifle 16 inch barrel there's nothing he can do with that ak except hold on to it and basically point it at things the whole night he's pointing at people's feet the whole night and even when you approach a car at low ready you might not be pointing at the driver but you're pointing it at the, the door you're pointing at the side of the car how is the driver supposed to like you know triangulate that and they're like oh that's not pointed at me um, I know plenty of women who couldn't tell you if something is pointed at them or not. <laughs> she didn't see it coming until it got her right in the eyes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, how are you supposed to know if a rifle is pointed at you or not when it's in the low ready? I think, I think it's also at least prudent to mention. I, I did some rideshare driving for a while and being down there at, at 2 a.m., uh, when the bars are letting out and people are all in the streets, I definitely thought about running over people with no political agenda, uh, just about every weekend. So it, it is one of those two of like, also understand the situation you're in and how high the tensions are. Like if you're in a, a March, a BLM March, marching down a street and a dr driver turns into the street that has the, the parade going on, like that driver's probably not in the most rational state of mind. So you just under, understand it's just bad choices, bad choices and, for everybody. And what is the, what are you there to accomplish anyway? Like you're, you're there for a show of support that you could have got the same kudos pat on the back on social media for, and there was nothing that was going to change from this March. I, I kind of think protesting's dumb in general. If you're not having a, a poignant, uh, you know, if you're not at a, a congressional building, uh, or putting a guillotine on a politician's porch, then I kind of think your protest is silly anyway. <laughs> That's well, I think that goes back to this um like lack of general responsibility in society. But I think that it's really important that we talk about when you have firearms 
in the situation, how much more responsibility and the escalated burden for you to be a extreme rational actor becomes because what ultimately ends up happening is this. And you get somebody that's like, okay, well, you approach somebody that drove unnecessarily like aggressive into this, into this street, but you also approach them with a weapon and the, the lack of situation, it's like both people, it's almost like, I don't want to ever say it's like they were both asking for it, but it's almost like they were all seeking it out, the confrontation. And there's something to be said about like, when I leave the fight, when I leave the house with a firearm, I leave knowing that there is the possibility that I might have to use it, but I will also do everything in my power to make sure that I don't, because that's not how I want to spend my day. Right. It's, and it's amazing how, how often this gets misconstrued where gun owners are these aggressive, mean, terrible people just looking to take life. And that's one thing I do want to talk about is how you're going to look at the Garrett Foster shooting. You're going to look at the, the shooting of, the young man in Kansas City. We're going to look at the shooting of that young woman in New York. And the media is going to jump on that to say, well, this is why, once again, we need to disarm the population. This is why stand your ground laws are absolute nonsense. When in reality, it's like these are bad actors that are using just poor judgment. And because when you look at the Rittenhouse case, like reasonable people aren't there. As, ad, as admirable as it is that you want to show up and defend property because, you know, your, your friend's dad owns the dealership or whatever, whatever compels you to be out that night, the rule of law is gone, right? There's no sort, there's no police presence. There's no detente that civil society, quote unquote, has established. Like that's out the window. The only people that are out on the street are unreasonable actors, regardless of, because reasonable people are staying home. And I think about that myself, where it's like, would I drive 20 minutes over to a town to go defend property? Fuck no. Nope, <laughs> I'm not leaving my house. If that spills over into my valley and they get past the roadblock that we've set up with trees, like dropping trees and whatnot, I guess we'll deal with it then. But until that moment, it's like, why would I ever leave the safety of my home to go confront um, protesters that are now turned rioters, right? Like un it's unreasonable. And, and it's, it's not like, yes. And that this is, I guess the point I'm trying to get to is like, there's a difference between like what you have as a right philosophically, and then what you have is a right, maybe when you start constructing it, like psychologically, you know, it's like, yes, you have the right to take a long gun to that protest. However, you have to understand the full weight and implication of taking that rifle outside of your house, having to carry around the, the weapon at low ready, because as you said, because just of the weapon and the operating system and the very real limitations that just so it's not bouncing around open for anybody, you have to secure your weapon. So now you have to have it in your hands at low ready and, the imp and all of this stuff starts cascading. And it bugs me that no, like, did you ever stop and think about that for just a minute, for just a minute? Because if you stop and think about it, like, and reason prevails, it's like, I guess I should probably stay home. Or if I'm going to go out, I'm going to pack a handgun. Yeah, it's like that Jurassic Park quote from the movie uh, Logan's girlfriend was watching earlier. Um, you never, you thought so long about whether you could, you never wondered if you should. And um, <laughs> I'll be really brief here, but I think there's one distinction people often forget when they talk about the law. 
you know, they say like, oh, well, I have a right to be here. And it's like, yeah, but the laws of physics also apply. You might know that in the state you live in, cars have to yield to pedestrians, but you're not walking out in front of a bus. It can't stop for you. It doesn't matter who's in the, the right or not, like your life is still going to be impacted. And I think that's something people often forget when they want to flex their rights. It's like you still have to figure out what's going to get you home safe at night and make you able to like continue to live the life that you like living. But uh, I'll, I'll right. let you. Well, that's, no, a, that's go ahead, Logan. That's a little bit of the problem of like putting all of your eggs in the basket of daddy government being your security blanket, too. Uh, these these people who are kind of flaunting their rights it is under this this perception that like no evil can befall me because i am in the right here i have the legal system on my side and therefore everybody's going to act accordingly and kind of the same way when they leave the house with a gun i'm sure uh mr foster didn't leave the house that night expecting to use his rifle he didn't leave the house with the correct intent what he left with was he thought if i take a rifle to this and i kind of think kyle rittenhouse felt the same way if i take a rifle out there and i pointed at people they're going to back down because they saw I got a rifle. And then all of a sudden somebody didn't back down and they're like, oh shit, now I have to take a human life or I have to discharge this weapon or whatever. And, and you end up in these, these scenarios where you have not prepared yourself because you thought everybody's going to back down when I brandish this weapon. Why wouldn't they? When they, the flip side to that coin is when you brandish a weapon, other weapons might come out. So you have to understand and weigh that uh, difficulty. I think it's also pretty telling that whenever we see these protests, these riots on all the, uh, the people involved, um, we see two categories. You see people who have not yet formed their prefrontal for cortex and are 19 years old that are in the middle of this, which are not irrational, not rational people. Uh, and then you see the the other people that were above that age are all people with like sex crimes and like felonies <laughs> on their record. Also not rational people. Like it's the, like, to your point, the, the rational thinkers, the people who have navigated life effectively see a shit storm outside and they go, you know what, let's watch Netflix tonight in our house. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even we could lay some blame here on Perry's feet for sure. I mean, a lot of people rolled out his texts and some of the things he was saying to people where he was like, oh, you know, if they come at me, I'm going to, you know, do X, Y, Z. I might have to kill a few people on my way to work today. It doesn't yeah, look good. Yeah. It doesn't look good when admitted into evidence. It, it does. I thought it was interesting, too, that he uh, he didn't testify on his own behalf, which I think in a self-defense case is yeah. I want to go back to that, but I also weird. want Flirt to finish what he was saying. Yeah, so the reason I bring it up was because, like, you're driving for Uber. You know there's, like, all sorts of shit going on downtown. And, like, you're of the mindset where you think you might have to take a life. It's like, just don't drive tonight. Like, there's plenty of other things you can be doing. Uh, I'm sure you don't need the money that badly. You know, the surge charge couldn't have been that great. Um, and, you know, if he could go back and do it all over again, I imagine now his thought would be like, just not to drive tonight. And there's um there's a dude who's passed away, but he was uh, excellent on this topic. Uh, his name was uh, Dr. William April. Um, he used to be a police officer. He used to uh, run this course called Unthinkable, which was for gun owners, but it was one of the few courses you could go to where you know, you're not bringing 10,000 rounds to go through in a weekend. You're actually sitting through there with him discussing, you know, what criminal actors are like, what they think about, and the things that you have to prepare for if you're going to bring a gun really anywhere. And, um, you know, part of the things that we rarely ever think about is like what happens after you shoot the gun. Um, even if everything is completely perfect, are you willing, ready, and able to do it? Like, imagine if, um, I don't know anything about Perry's personal life. Imagine he had a family and kids who depended on him for support. And, you know, his thought is, I'm going to drive and I might end up in these protests. 
Um, the thought that should come after that is like, well, if I end up in jail for five years, who's taking care of my son or my daughter? Right. And that's something that people rarely think about when it comes to like, am I willing to take a life for my own self-defense? And sometimes you need to actually adjust the situation in which you're willing to take a life and maybe make it be like, like you're saying, the smart people staying home. And maybe that's really what you actually need to be doing because of the things going on in your life. You know, if you're single, you don't have any kids, no one depends on you. Sure, go to the protest with the long gun. I don't know. Do whatever you got to do. But, you know, Knock yourself on. out. <laughs> yeah. Depending on what's going on in your life, though, we really do need to think about, like, all of the consequences that this world has, like, built into it. But anyways, I'll let y'all hop on to the next thought that y'all were uh, heading towards. Yeah, and I didn't want to come off. Maybe I was uh, being a little too critical of Foster and not Perry there for the way Matthew reacted to it. I by no means think Perry was uh, making rational decisions that night either or was necessarily in the right. And I, to y'all's point, uh, I think when you're beating your chest about it, even if you didn't truly intend it, it, it doesn't have a good look when you're basically saying like, oh, these idiots out here protesting are about to catch a bullet if they get in my way while I'm driving tonight. And then you end up shooting somebody. It seems like you had at least an inkling of, of the uh, situation you were getting yourself into and you still decided to make that decision. Yeah. Um, and that, well, I guess what I wanted to talk about on that note is that there, there's got to be a balance, right? Where the media and kind of like the NPCs come at all gun owners, um, like guns are bad, take the guns, you know, like this is why, like when when mass murders are committed with a handgun, this is why we need to ban assault rifles, or it was an assault style pistol, right? There's so many terrible bad faith arguments coming from that um, from that side. But what it's, it's something I've been trying to like I've been trying to be more self critical about myself and about our philosophy as like liberty liberty loving people, and that is one thing is like responsible gun owners. We need to also start being vocal. And being very clear about like that's not good gun etiquette that's not good gun behavior right the fact that you left your house not, and I, I don't know what Kyle Rittenhouse was thinking I don't know what uh, um, Garrett Foster was thinking but if if we take Logan's argument on face value that they maybe left the house but didn't fully intend to use it then what but what do you what do you mean that you like you went out of your home with a firearm how could you not intend to use it? Like that is the entire purpose of leaving the house with a firearm. And I know that every, and it's not even Matthew in, in an aggressive, the purpose of leaving the house and all this combat gear in my firearm is to look super fucking sweet for my social media posts. That's fair. And if that is, and if that is the case, well, and that, that exactly proves my point, right? Like you didn't think through the consequences of your actions to their logical conclusions. And this is where, as, as all like fervent 2A supporters and gun owners that we are, that this is where we have to start being critical of those that when they try to make us pick sides, we would end like that we have to be critical of the side that we would naturally quote unquote fall on, right? Well, it's like, oh, well, it was his right to own that gun or it was his right to, to shoot that gun in self-defense. Like we have to be critical of that because if we aren't self-critical, and we aren't sharpening ourselves in our own arguments and we're not like making each other a lot stronger internally that when the outside comes, well, then we just, well, we're the disraveled, we're the disorganized mob that live like the libertarian party and kind of like the freedom community is viewed on a, as a whole outside of it. And so you've got to be very critical. Like, what do you mean you didn't, 
you have to assume that when you leave the house or you pull your firearm, if there's a knock on the door going to Kansas City and you get and you stand up and you get your gun, that you at that moment, you have to assume that the logical conclusion of your actions in this sequence of events about to play out is going to be somebody dead on the other end of your muzzle. And if you haven't thought of that and taken steps for it, then you're completely unprepared. It's like, oh, cool, you picked up a gun. Congratulations. You now have legal battles. Like you started talking about keep, uh, flirt cheap, whatever. Sorry. <laughs> it, doesn't <matter. laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> We're passing now. Yeah, it's the old Uncle Ben uh, principle. Uh, great responsibility. <laughs> great great power comes great responsibility. It is the, oh, that, the, uh, that Uncle Ben. Sorry. That that sorry thinking, I, was about the rice. <laughs> I was thinking about the rice and then like, yeah, sorry, man. Yeah, I definitely spider about the rice too. <laughs> <laughs> but we've done a, an entire episode on that in the past that, I mean, the flip side to that coin of saying that government cannot really effectively protect you. And that's why we shouldn't be giving up our rights in the idea of safety coming on the back end there is still a vacuum of where does your safety come from? And that comes from your own responsibility. If we're asking for rights, you're taking it out of the hands of big daddy government, which we all uh, tend to think is the correct way to operate. We do have to take on the responsibility and that goes with gun ownership as well. You are taking a dangerous weapon out potentially that can take a human life and you're responsible for where that muzzle's pointed and where the, the bullet goes. Uh, and you have to take on that burden and understand the responsibility of it and not take that lightly. And I think too many people do take that lightly for sure. I think that not enough people get the, the gun education they, they need. I think not enough people get the driver defensive driver education they need. My dad used to hammer that in my head. I had to take defensive driving courses when I was like 14. I was the only kid I knew that was doing that. Uh, but the result of that is I'm the only kid in my high school who wasn't going 90 miles an hour down the little strip to see how fast my car goes. And I was the one who got made fun of for driving like a grandma. And I'm also the only one that would drive a car for 15 years before the engine finally gives out. Because That's I not true. You flipped, you flipped the Cadillac. <laughs> All right. I'm not. I'm not. That's not you know, true. You no. Know, incorrect, sir. I flipped the Chevy truck when I was 17. Uh, but I did not flip the Cadillac. I drove it until that thing was a fucking death trap. Oh, that's right. You did. You you flipped Coach Conkin's truck. <laughs> hey, look, that's right. Defensive Logan, it was a defensive flip. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You, you make you make really good points, but I'm just not going to let you get away that easy. All right. <laughs> the listeners don't know of this history. I do though. <laughs> and you don't get to lie to them. To that's fair. But hey, point. this uh, this can come right back to never admit defeat or take a step backwards once I've made a declarative statement. Uh, I was 17 and I was an irrational actor in that moment. Fair. Vortex <laughs> just hadn't formed yet. Come on. That's actually a really good chance. I'll give you that one. So one thing I think that's unsaid between all of us that I think we understand, but I think would be a good debate out loud is, you know, we've talked about like one half of William Maple's philosophy, which is like, you know, you need to think about like the totality. It's of too bad it wasn't William May. We could have had him on the podcast. Oh, dude, you're horrible, man. That joke. Uh, he's only been on one podcast and it was great. It was the uh, Practically Tactical podcast for anyone who cares. I shouldn't remember this stuff, but I do. Um, but Protect uh, the yeah. autist at all points. <laughs> uh, the, tra the trans community is coming for him. But um, the, the other half of this debate, too, is also understanding that sometimes there are things that you are willing to go to jail for and to you know, be ready for those just in case they pop up. And I do wonder, you know, what obligation do we have to not give up our public spaces 
to uh, actors who want to bring violence just to kind of chase us out of them. Because very recently in South Africa, which has a very different legal system, I'll say, uh, the police are almost non-existent, but um, one of the political parties there, the like far left party, they're not the ones in charge, only the lefts are in charge, not the far left, but they were having basically a, a day of protest where they're basically gonna shut down every business they could find, anyone who was doing anything that are gonna force them not to work. And it ended up not working because a bunch of South Africans with rifles basically patrolled the streets for anyone in those trucks or with those colors and basically like chased them away. And, um, you know, obviously this gets looked at as like a very positive action because they managed to keep the country open for that day. Um, obviously people get shot in South Africa every day. So there was still violence, but um, it wasn't comparatively any different than any other day in South Africa. And it makes you wonder, do we also have a positive obligation to enter these spaces when these protests are occurring to like say like, hey, no, we still live life. Like, I mean, should an Uber driver be chased away from his job of driving each night just because like some people have taken over downtown? And I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's something for people to think about if they're listening to this. You know, this isn't just one way, stay home, you have to. It's more of like really consciously think through what's it worth to you? And you know, everyone has a different answer to that question. And there are certainly people who could rationally say like, it's worth everything. And you know they'll, they'll go out there with the gun and more power to them. I don't have anything against them. I really don't. Um, but you know, what do y'all think about this? Where do y'all land on this uh, responsibility to the public versus responsibility to your own private people around you and yourself? Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I, I think uh, one thing that did kind of pop in my head as I was agreeing with you categorically on most of that is, uh, again, the the uh, being a fully formed adult, having a, a brain and well thought out. Um, don't go die for something when you're 17 years old because you like the social media posts, you know. Uh, if you're going to be willing to die for something, you should understand it fully and have done a lot of deep thinking about it. And I think uh, that might be part of that issue as well is that people, again, a lot of these people at the protest are high school or just graduated high school kids. And they're out here marching the streets in incredibly dangerous situations, uh, just not fully grasping the danger that's around them because their brains are dumb teenage brains. Yeah, true. And at that age, it's almost impossible to like, who, who are we really to tell them no? Like, um, you know, what were we doing at that age? Like, can I realistically, like, sometimes I'll see like sideshows, which are like, when streets get taken over and people are just like drifting their cars in circles, it happens a lot downtown here. And like half of me is like, God, these damn kids. But then the other half of me is like, oh, I don't really know if like they're in the wrong place per se, you know? I mean, they do need some sort of outlet like that. And if this is the outlet, like our society is giving them, then we're kind of to blame. Like maybe we should give them something else. Um, where they can also feel like similarly passionate and engaged, but like maybe not be tearing up a city. And I don't know what that is, but I feel like that might be a failure of us or our own society. You know, obviously it's utopian of us to say like, oh, these damn 19 year olds, they shouldn't be joining a protest. But dude, I remember when Obama was elected, I was 18. Someone drove their car into the manager's office of the apartment I lived in. And we basically were having like a little like 
I don't know, a block party outside of like this yeah, car accident. Right. <laughs> um, at like 18, just like, or fuck, what was, I think I might've been 19. I don't know. I was around that area. Of college Obama. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly what was going on. We were Obama. Like, down, Obama in front of this car accident. It was, and That's, I'm sure I more shit than that. To your point on that, too, the fastest way to get an 18-year-old to do something is to tell them they shouldn't do it. And mm-hmm. I was definitely one of those 18-year-olds myself. I've, obviously, I'm a person who's a little bit averse to a, authority for the sake of authority. We do an entire podcast on why I hate every authority figure in my life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's one of those. <laughs> we had that. There was a, a restaurant I was managing in Lubbock there, and uh, they had a, an unfinished wooden wall. And all the students were signing, you know, Tommy loves Sarah on the wall. And so the the GM of the restaurant slapped a sign on there that says there are cameras here and anybody who gets caught writing on the walls will be prosecuted. And immediately I'm like, that's a mistake, man. You Graffiti probably went up you. 50 fold. Yeah. Well, what they started doing, which I thought a little bit hilarious of them because it said anybody who graffitis or writes on this wall, they all started carving into the wall. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Which Get is them just on a, the technicality. A real shithead thing to do, but I have to respect the uh, the Henri shithead thing on some level of just like, that was that was pretty clever. I, I kind of like that. <laughs> the prefrontal cortex might not have been formed, but the problem solving and decision making. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> top notch, top notch, firing at all cylinders. Yeah. you make You make really good points. And I've been thinking about, my answer to this, and I keep going back to Ulysses S. Grant's quote, kind of about the uh, about the Civil War, where it's like every every citizen has the right, um, you know, to seek redress from their government, and if that doesn't work, you have the right to rebel, but w- or you have the right to revolution, but when you do, you stake life, liberty, and property, as as kind of the it's kind of like the counterweight that that's your wager to to do those things, and I absolutely butchered that quote. And so I'm sorry, you the ghost of Ulysses S. Grant. Um, may may your war crimes rest in peace. <laughs> but uh, but it does make you like you have a good point. Where you should have the right to go out there, and and I and maybe that is it. Maybe this is exactly kind of the space that we should have in society. That if you want to go out and protest, no matter how uh, you know futile Logan thinks it is, if you want to go out and carry a rifle <laughs> and do dumb things, like perhaps there should be a space for that. I don't really know the answer um, at the end of the day to like, how to speak for society. I know that I have thought those things out in my own mind about what is worth it, what is not, how far am I willing to travel in terms of like if there's if there's something going on if there's protests if there's riots if there's insurrections if there's insurgencies if there's invasions right like how far geographically in miles am i willing to travel for any of those things and i can tell you the answer is not far um all of them are not far because even and but then that also makes that begs the question right it's like if you're not willing to fight for the greater good of society and these ideals that we hold so dear well, then what happens when it shows up at your doorstep? There's nobody left, right? That's the Niemöller quote about, you know, first they came for the communists and they came for the gays, blah, blah, blah. And then they came for me and there was nobody left to protest. And I think that there's, I, I don't have a solid answer, except that I have thought about it for me personally. And I can tell you that it's not far. 
And there's not a lot of situations in which I'm going out of my way to participate in that. But I also think on the flip side of that, if you have thought about it to its logical conclusion, if you have staked it out in your mind, philosophically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, right? That's one thing I can't stand about kind of like the internet two-way thing. It's like, why are you glorifying civil war, which is going to be like the most traumatic experience of your life? I don't like, let's settle down on all of that. It's not going to be good. It's not going to be cool. It's not going to be glorious. Stop buying into kind of the propaganda that the military sells on just like a different avenue because it's not going to be those things. Um, It's going to be horrific. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be bloody. And statistically speaking, as an insurgent, you're not going to make it very long. Um, But that's another conversation for another day. But if you've thought about it and you've come to that conclusion that you've squared it with yourself, your family, your God, and you're willing to go stake that, then... mm, I, who am I to say that you're wrong? Have either of you seen the movie No Country for Old Men? Love it. I absolutely love it. Okay. And one of my top, one of my top 10 films, actually. So, you know, this, this whole thing is reminding me of a very specific scene that you probably know a lot of, uh, Matthew. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's where he goes into the gas station. He's got the coin flipped and he spends the entire movie like flipping the coin and asking people to call it. And if they call it right, he doesn't kill them. They call it wrong, he kills them. And that's just kind of his like sadistic thing that he does in the movie. But during the gas station, he's having this conversation with the attendant who owns the gas station and he's like refusing to call right it. into it. Yeah. <laughs> Because he chokes on the peanut. (laughs) Oh, exactly, exactly. But this is the counterweight to this whole like don't protest, live a safe life. You know, Um, he uh, he refuses to bet on like the coin thing because he doesn't know what he's put up at stake. And um, the 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 Anton Sugar, his character says, "You've been putting up putting it up your whole life. You just don't know it." And um, the thing that he's been putting up is he's been making safe choices his entire life. And his life has just been kind of passing him by, like he married into it. Exactly. Like none of it was his choice. None of it was like um, a positive, like there were no goals involved really for him to get where he got. And, um, you know, he's been losing his life every single day. He just doesn't know he's been putting it up. And like Ulysses S. Grant says in your quote, um, you know, you have a right to go outside whenever you want, to protest whenever you want, and you're putting your life at stake. And in those moments, we know that our life is at stake because it's very obvious that something could happen, but we forget that when we're living a safe life, when we're not driving Uber and we say to ourselves, we're going to stay home because there's a protest tonight, that day also passes you by and you don't get it back. And um, I think we always default to living as long as possible whenever we have these discussions about really anything in life. Um, but, you know, an extra day of life might not really be worthwhile, if I'm going to be totally honest. You look at how some people die in, in old age. They spent seven years on a machine. Uh, they've got dialysis going in and out. They're fighting cancer on and off. The chemo is taking, like, everything from their life. And you might ask yourself, maybe I should have actually gone out to that protest when I was younger. I mean, how many older people regret not taking more risks when they were, when they were younger? And that's something I think we really need to think about in terms of like the value of protest, the value of like, are we going to give up our city to looters, rioters, protesters or not? You know, it's um, when we talk about really thinking it through, you need to imagine that Anton Chigurh is flipping a coin in front of you and your whole thing is flashing before your mind. And you're like, man, maybe I should have done something else before I ended up here in front of the end of your life guy with his like cow gun. And um, that's, that's like the other side to this. So, you know, young people, 
maybe they should be out of these protests. <laughs> I don't know the answer. <laughs> no, you make really good points. And it's, um, it's, uh, this is another quote that I have in my mind that I'm probably going to butcher, but it's like the greatest, the greatest gamble that you can make with your life is postponing something in the hope that you can do it tomorrow. And I think about that often, like we were talking before I was up at Silverton and it's not like it's all that, you know, it's not like, oh my goodness, we were just risking everything for the, you know, it's like, it's fine. It's like, there's patrol there. They've done, they do bomb routes. They're safe. Like they shut down things before it gets too dangerous, but it's also, it's, it's that good reminder because it's one of the only ski areas that I know that they don't let you on the chairlift unless you have a beacon, a shovel and a probe. And those things are for two, for two reasons. You're either the beacons so you can find people when they're buried. And so you can probe them when you hit something, you can then dig them out. Or if you get buried, someone can find you, right? There's very specific, there's only two scenarios in which those things are needed and neither of them are good. And it, it, it makes you, it puts in perspective where even though it's like, oh, I'm at a, I'm at a resort, I bought a ticket, this is all fine. The fact that it's like, oh, I'm not literally letting you on the lift until your beacon's on. And I can, Dean Nina is like, he he puts up his beacon to yours and it goes off. It's like, all right, you can get on. It's that reminder, like, oh, there is actually like high consequences to where I'm at and what I'm doing. Absolutely. I mean, you think about like the people in the past that we look to as heroes, um, they're almost always people who have like risked their lives or put something up at stake. It's never people who just say like, well, the safe route is going home tonight. And, um, you know, maybe you might be a hero in the wrong place. You know, I mean, even hell has its heroes, right? You don't want to be the person who's uh, like, there's Nazi heroes, right? I'm sure there's plenty of people who like laid down their life and maybe it was the wrong place. I don't know. Some people have a lot of Nazi heroes, even today. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I've only got five, man. All right. <laughs> Just five. Huh? No, there's something to be said for that me. though. That, like the, the names that we remember through the annals of history, how many farmers can you name? Like uh Cincinnaticus, wasn't it? The the Roman guy who <laughs> went on to be a farmer and, and left the state, but that's like the only half example I could think of. And we don't remember him because of the beautiful cabbages he grew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's... there's definitely a and there is something to that. I mean, you have to make risk in this lifetime. There is no tremendous gain to be made by muddling through time time has no neutral it's always moving forward and and like you said you can make a meager existence and and live a, a unsatisfying life and there are other ways than just monetary gain of course to be a, a successful impactful person on this planet but it doesn't come typically from the guy who tends his own shire at home it, it comes from influencing the world around you and that does take some level of risk no matter what kind of influence you're going to have yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll only say like one last thing on this topic, because I know there's a bunch of other stuff we're supposed to talk about. But um, one of my favorite quotes, it's probably fictionalized. I'm not sure if it's real or not. Uh, it was from uh, Kawaji, who was like um, the brother to the emperor um, during the uh, post-collapse period of the Han dynasty, like back in like um, 180 BC. I don't remember exactly when, but um, his brother became the emperor. And um, obviously, like, he ends up being, like, a risk to his brother now, because, like, no one was quite sure who the uh, emperor needed to be, because, like, the oldest son didn't inherit it. And um, so his right. brother... It's easier died. to choose if one of the brothers is dead. Yeah, if they're all dead, it's a lot easier. Um, so his brother basically summoned him to the imperial court 
And all of his friends were like, no, no, don't go. We know what they're taking you there for. Come on, we can escape. And um, he was like perpetually drunk. Like he's not someone to look up to. But uh, <laughs> in this moment, he looked at his friends and he basically said, um, uh, my friends, what great boon is one more day of life? And what great failure is one earlier day of death? I butchered the quote, but it was something along those lines. It was basically like, you know, I might as well go and see what's going to happen. And um, in the fictional story, he ends up writing like a really beautiful poem and his brother like falls down into tears and he just goes off to be like the prefect of some province like far away and lives out the rest of his life. I don't know if that's what actually happened in the real world, but the quote by itself is still definitely beautiful. Like sometimes it's it's time to go face the music, whatever music that might be, because you're obligated to in some sense, if you're going to be the man you say you are. And um, that might mean that you have to be the loser. You might be an early burial one day, um, but maybe that's better than just tending your crops for no real reason or working in your, your father-in-law's gas station until you're 60 or 70 years old for no real purpose. I mean, that's not much of a life. I mean, we all have to choose something. But anyway, so let's all get back to the, the topic. It's just the, no, the day that's... of butchering quotes here. It's too bad we're pissing off all these old ghosts, especially uh, Grant. I can't imagine Robert or Lee's a fan of you guys. That's okay. He lost his his opinion. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> the strong did what they could, and the weak suffered what they must. <laughs> As always. So. Oh, so... I guess it's time to move on to uh, Ralph Yarl. Talk about this Kansas City case a little bit. You said you hadn't heard much about this one yet. Uh, I know for... about it. So you guys are going to have to inform me live and you'll get my uneducated response. So it is pretty fresh right now, obviously. So we're still getting all the facts out. And, and obviously there is a trial to come for this. Um, but essentially the story we've gotten so far is uh, Ralph Yarl's a young uh, black man, 16-year-old kid in Kansas City. Uh, and he went to pick up his younger, I think it was younger brother, but I saw siblings. Younger somewhere. siblings. So maybe there are multiple siblings he was yeah. going to pick up from There's a play three, date after school. Three of them. And he uh, gets the wrong address, knocks on the door. Uh, no words are exchanged. And uh, an old man shoots him through the glass door once in the head and once in the arm. Uh, after he's already shot. Damn. Yeah, right. He... Uh, I'm not sure which shot came first. Do you know if it was the, the shot in the head? The shot in the head came first. And then when he was on the ground, he then shot him in the arm just to make sure. Yeah, it seems backwards if you're going to make sure. I think the double tap thing is supposed to go to the head, but not not to uh, criticize. Well, he's 80, it, what is, what, 84, 86. Who's to say it's like, ah, like he's, he he's struggling? Man. He's also just fulfilled like all of his racial fantasies of shooting yeah. a young yeah. black man. So I'm sure that there's like a lot of like gun trembling, to be fair. That was uh, the first like thing in defense you hear from the old man is uh, that he was intimidated by the size of the young black man. I put in parentheses black size next to that in our document there. Um, but then you uh, as you like go through and, and purse out more details, he's like not six foot tall. He's like 170 ish pounds and he's like the lead in the school high school band. And I don't know. I've just never seen a clarinet player that made me shit my pants personally. Damn, I mean, this sounds horrible, like right off the bat. So <laughs> it is, it is, bad. it is absolutely horrible. And this is, and this is one of those examples that I think that plays back into this idea of the media is going to try to come at this from an intellectually dishonest position and say that this is why stand your ground laws are bad. And this is why we need to, we need to repeal these and why we need to implement certain things when it's like, this is clearly 
not an actor that is acting in good faith, especially to the stand your ground law or castle doctrine. It doesn't matter which one you point at. Um, if you want to use either or as an argument to defend this person's actions, neither are going to hold up at least yeah. upon like the initial reading of this, right? Cause there's a lot of evidence and right. That's kind of why I preface that. Cause we don't know exactly what the approach was or what the, it sounds pretty bad, but we'll, we'll have more details I'm sure in the and, near future. And there's also two things. Oh, go ahead. Well, it's just a question. Does the old man have a different story about what happened? Or does the old man also say he knocked on my door and then I shot him through the door? No, the old man said that he was, he saw him trying to like open the door and was like yanking on the external storm door. And there was and even then, some discrepancy on that. I think there was at least one police officer that said that he, the old man admitted that he wasn't yanking on the door. So, you know, again, we got to wait on the murkiness to, to clear of that, but it definitely doesn't seem good. I mean, it, it does seem like he came to his front door after the doorbell was rang, saw a young black man and thought the only rational thing to do was to put the black man down. What time of day was this? Was the sun? This was, it, this was dark. The sun was not up. I want to say it was at, nine i want to say it's like eight or nine o'clock okay so like not too late but like later late enough that it'd be dark late enough and at least one report that i'd read that he was laying on his couch when this happened and then he got up and grabbed his revolver half asleep a little bit yeah but it's like and that's what i'm afraid of is is in this they're going to try to paint they're going to use this man's clearly like wrong actions because it doesn't matter. It's like, like even if somebody is trespassing or not, like if this kid was clearly trespassing to all like legal standards and you just shot him like that, you were still going to be charged. Right. And I know that a lot of people glorify it's like, well, it's my property and you're trespassing. I can shoot you if I want. It's like, well, most state laws actually don't allow you just to shoot trespassers and survivors will be shot again, which he, clearly tried but i guess he doesn't have the aim or the or the wherewithal or the fortitude to finish it off who's to say but there is no there's no i don't know um reasonable outcome or there's no reasonable um i guess reason so to speak that you should just start sending rounds through the door just because somebody's at your front door like even when i hear because there's like certain times where certain times of the day, like I know who is going to be showing, like if there's just a random knock on the door during certain times, I have a solid guess of who it might be. You know what? And, and I don't answer the, I don't answer the door with a firearm, but if the, but if the door is like, if I say the dogs start barking on here, knock at the door and it's like seven 30 and the people that I expect are like out of town or I know they're at home. Well then I actually, I, I will answer the door with a firearm, um, not readily, not readily visible, not just like at high ready, you know, it's like, I'm not going to open the door. And the first thing you see is a shotgun right in your face, you know, but it's there. It's, it's close by, um, to make, to make decisions about it, but to, to, it is, I can't imagine the situation in which I answer the door or before I answer the door, I just start sending rounds through the door. See, I, I get where you're coming from there, but I, I do want to take your hypothetical and just twist it a little bit. Like, keep all of those same details the same, but imagine when you opened that door, there was a, a young black man standing there, Matthew. You still think you wouldn't pull the trigger? <laughs> Don't <laughs> no, make it's me obviously abhorrent. It's, it's, 
Don't make me answer that. It's a great answer. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's exactly obviously... what a racist would say. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me say it, guys. <laughs> uh, you know, no, it's, 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 oh, go for it. I was just going to say, it's egregious, and it's even worse that it's a 16-year-old kid. And, and I mean, not... I, mean, I guess it's not less terrible if it's a, an intimidating kid, but it's a, a seemingly... a, a well-mannered kid who succeeds in the school band i think he, they said he was the first chair in the clarinet in the band i mean this is it's i can't imagine the uh, clarinet players the bully at the school like this is probably a very sweet <laughs> child and it it's definitely accented by that and the the racial component and it, it's a lot of grotesqueness within it and it ultimately kind of comes down to again that responsibility that we're talking about that like man just because you have the right to protect your house and you have the right to own a gun and i support all these rights doesn't mean you're allowed to just full sell send bullets out of the front of your house when somebody is soliciting for a reason you don't like. Right, because sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Oh no, I'll let you finish if it's quick. But, Unless it's gonna be yeah. long, you bastard. No, it won't be. Well, it's like um I was driving through, I was driving back from uh Silverton Durango yesterday and I drove through Farmington um on my way to Albuquerque to just run an errand and then come back to where I live. But that was where the cops answered the cops showed up at the wrong house the guy answered the door with a gun in hand and cops proceeded to shoot him right and that's the only thing that i say it's like there is it's so it's it's such a i don't know well obviously if there's cops outside you should shoot first every time it's like (laughs) it's like did you remember that there's that situation where the two guys like dressed up as federal agents and tried to rob a house and then the guy like shot through and then there was a meme about it that was like oh that's so awesome how did you know that those guys were (laughs) how did you know that those guys were robbers and not federal agents he's like they were robbers robbers. (laughs) (laughs) that's exactly right yeah yeah and i I think one thing that bugs me about like the two-way community when it comes to this kind of topic is you'll see this every now and then like someone will post some like ring video from like San Francisco where some like cracked out person is like knocking on the door and is like tell her from outside so I can rape her and it's just like um the, the, you look in the comments and every single like two-way person is like at that point I'd be sending rounds through the door you don't know if he's coming in and you know when it comes to defensive property it's not always about guns like you can get a steel core door you can upgrade to a Medeki locks, which are way better than the, the shit ones you get when you just buy the house. Um, you can get one of those, like, um, I forget what they're called. But it's like a little metal triangle that goes like below the door. Uh, the mm-hmm. one where you can open it up. Uh, I mean, you can get all sorts of things to secure your entrance for like three, $400 at most. A uh, thousand if you want to ball out. I mean, people can buy like full steel doors. You can talk to your wife and tell her why you don't need a window on the door um maybe she'll agree maybe she won't um you can set up a camera system like you can set up all sorts of different systems to stop you from having to pull the gun and shoot through the door and i, I think one big problem is people always like default to the gun when it comes to solving a problem um you know um i was reading a thread by this guy who used to break into houses and uh he basically outlined things you could do to make him not want to break into your house uh, cause he had like a, a system for like cutting through glass, getting through windows, uh, you know, which, which types of doors he would target and whatnot. And he said something as simple as like putting thorny bushes in front of your first floor windows, and then just getting a steel core door with no windows. He wouldn't bother breaking in. 
And, you know, it's simple things like this that you can think about. If you're getting a gun for self-defense, you can also think to yourself, like, well, for the price of a Glock, I can probably secure all of my entries and my door. You know, if it's only going to be a home gun and you're not comfortable enough with, you know, putting it in the holster, concealed carrying when you open the door, maybe there's other solutions for you as well. Maybe it's not all just gun. You know, a lot of people have like seven, eight, nine guns and their front door is like glass and they've got like a mesh door behind it. And I'm like, bro, where are your priorities at? You don't need that like <laughs> Soviet era well, I mean, uh, mill serve gun. You make all that sound very nice when you put it that way, but I don't remember John Wick ever going through a Taco Bell line and getting locks for his doors, all right? <laughs> We've sensationalized guns in this country and we're going to fucking use them when we feel like it. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, true, man. John Wick was having a lot more fun than us, but, you know, um, all bets aside, John Wick probably should have been living a much shorter life than us. Um, you know, he should have been right. out at 28. The brightest stars burn out the fastest, right? And I, I think if we really choose to live the John Wick lifestyle, we also need to embrace the, the shorter nature of it. And, um, you know, I, I could tangent here but I'm not going to. I think we should get back to the case a bit more. So um, is this guy using uh, Castle Doctrine as his defense? Essentially, yeah, he's trying to use Stand Your Ground as his defense, which I know that every state has nuances and variations of Stand Your Ground. And so let me see if I can find it because I did pull it up. Um, I wanted to look at specific, uh, Missouri-specific Stand Your Ground law. Um here it is. Well, it so, was, uh, I believe Trayvon Martin was also in Kansas was, City, Missouri, right? No, that was in Florida. Oh, excuse me. Was, but it was Stand Your Ground. But not, that was, not in that was down in Florida. And that was like the first time that like Stand Your Ground kind of got thrust into the national spotlight. Um, so according to Missouri state law, the use of force in defense of persons, one, a person may, comma, Subject to the provisions of subsection two of this section, use physical force upon another person when and to the extent he or she reasonably believes such force to be necessary to defend himself or herself or a third person from what he or she reasonably believes to be the use or imminent use of unlawful force by such a person. And so then it gives you a bunch of different uh, scenarios in which this does apply and it doesn't apply. But then you get to um, subsection two of this. Um, so the under the circumstances, as the actor reasonably believes them to be, the person whom he or she seeks to protect would not be justified in the use of such protective force, blah, blah, blah. The, a person shall not use deadly force upon another person under the circumstances specified unless, and this is where subsection two, such force is used against a person who unlawfully enters, remains after unlawfully entering, or attempts to unlawfully enter a dwelling, residence, or a vehicle lawfully occupied by such person. Mm, okay, interesting. So they did say attempts to enter, right? So I mean, I guess the guy could make the claim as long as his story was consistent that the kid was it, trying to enter. But even then, that's still, right. still a, a huge stretch there. And, you know, I, I think it all totally depends on what sort of affirmative. Is the kid still alive? Did he survive? He or? is. He is he alive. Is. I don't know what condition he's in. I mean, a head injury Probably. from a bullet's not uh, not the best thing to have to overcome. Yeah. I mean, it depends where. I, I think it's kind of 
we all have this idea in our head from like movies and whatnot that like, yeah, you know, like a brain shots is just fatal all the time or, or it's a coma it's one of the two but um I am unfortunately from like watching a lot of like underground rappers have discovered that like you can get shot in the head and be up and running in like three or four days back to normal. And um, uh, the streets are wild in that sense, but maybe, maybe this kid will be up or maybe he already is up. Who knows? Uh, when did this happen? I think, I think he was released a couple of days ago. A couple of days ago. He's already out of the hospital. Okay. I think so. Did I make that up? I'm looking right now. Um, I thought Let's I read see. that somewhere, but which is insanely lucky and think. Well, God. I think that he is awake and verbal because a lot of the counter testimony mm. was provided by him. Um, let's see. Gives an update on the condition. Um, see. Uh, this is just running through the story. I, I just want to. I guess I appreciate all, like all the context, but it's like it's not what I want. I just Dude, it's want... like when you look for like a recipe online, and they're like, yeah, "Oh, a... well, did you know that the reverse steer steer for the steak a... in the eighteen hundreds?" And like, bro, just tell me how long. <laughs> tell me how to make it, <laughs> just, please. Yeah, I don't. I don't need to read about the early life of Ralphie Auerl. Like, I I really just need to know about this one particular night and the events afterwards. Like, I'm not really. <laughs> I don't even know how uh, gifted of a kindergartner he was to to get the full context here. I really want to blame like journalism as a whole, like and an educational institution because they're they're just taught to like overwrite to everyone wants to be like the next like Walter Cronkite or whatever, and it's like, bro, that's not you. Just give me like two paragraphs details. You know of what I need. So it's, this, um, let's see. So quote: He is able to communicate mostly when he feels like it. But he mostly just sits there and stares, and buckets of tears ro just roll down his eyes. Ugh. Mm. You can see that oh, he he just replays the situation blood. over and over again. Ah, uh, that's so sad. And that's the thing that's too, where silly. it's like this. Oh man, this person's actions have, and that's I think that's like this goes back to this idea that we don't truly take hold of our responsibility and understand how deeply our actions ripple out into the world. Like how much, how primary, secondary, tertiary effects that what you do as some old man. And, and I think that it's, it's unfair to just jump ahead and like call him a racist, right? It's like this racist old man, because you have no idea what actually motivated that, right? Like who knows, maybe this, maybe this old man has, been robbed before right maybe there's been some circumstances that leads him to actually think that the most reasonable course of action is to put some rounds through the door i am curious and open to hearing that um because nothing happens in a vacuum but it's also like super sad just to like read that i lost all momentum on reading yeah. that article yeah that kid's whole life is ruined and it's something to think about it's why i bring up like the doors like, you don't know who you're protecting. You might think like, oh, I'm protecting myself and my family. But you're also protecting someone from like maybe having their entire life ruined. Like sometimes you watch a video and it's like, there was a recent one where this girl was like, do you want Girl Scout cookies? And she's like talking into the camera and she's clearly like on drugs or some shit, just ruined, messed up. And who knows, like she might be totally normal the next day. And it might be that she goes on to live a completely normal life. And if you have a door that you feel comfortable enough not putting rounds through, that girl gets to go live her whole life or this kid would have gotten to live his whole life and everything would have been normal. But um, when you put those rounds through that door, 
you're definitely ending a lot more lives than just you know the person you're shooting at there's also all the people that are tangentially connected like this kid's mother is probably feeling horrible uh his friends maybe he has a girlfriend that he's not part of their life anymore and if he is he's not the same guy he's sitting there crying or whatever the kids feel guilt because if they weren't at the house then he wouldn't have had to come pick me up that's yeah it starts to spiral out of control quickly and um he was also released from the hospital on sunday and is recovering at home well yeah goddamn like gone um, hopefully he can find like some way to put like a life back together, but who knows, man? I mean, I don't know where you go from this. And, uh, when you protect, when you, when you like secure your home, you're protecting a lot more people than just yourself. You know, that two, three, $400 is, you know, one peace of mind knowing that, Hey, if the cops show up with a battering ram, it's going to take them an extra minute and 20 seconds to get through. than if I had the regular wooden door. That's some peace of mind. You got time to put on your level four plates, actually get your rifle out, <laughs> grabbing your pistol. That, that's one thing it gets you. But on the other hand, it also saves all the like regular people who you might have felt threatened by who suddenly aren't any threat. Those Medeki locks, they take forever to pick. Um, it's a, a very different experience for a lock picker compared to like the Dura lock or whatever the, the shit is that your house comes with. Um, you know, you buy yourself time, you buy yourself time to think. And you might buy someone else like the rest of their life that they get to have, whether that means going and robbing somewhere else or just going and picking up their brother because they knocked on the wrong house. Who knows? It's it's tough to say. And um, I think that's the kind of decision making we all need to think about when we're thinking about guns, protecting ourselves and what we're doing here. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought much about that, but that uh, the uh, we're static in who we are as human beings. We're, we're constantly changing and, and it can be for the worse. It can be you for the dynamic, better, but right. Static is constantly moving, right? I, was, I thought, I thought static was still. No, no, no. <laughs> I can't tell if you're being a menace or not here, Logan. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm legitimately being ignorant. Oh, right I now. always think static so is still. Well, I mean, static on TV is like constantly moving. Right. So I get the like interpretation so where I, where I interpret that. Incredibly. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to derail you. Sorry. We are, that. we are constantly evolving beings that we, we have the potential for good and evil in all of us. And we're not, none of us are emphatically good or evil. None of us are completely wholly one or the other. There's all these gray areas and all these areas of development. Uh, and that's a really interesting point that just because somebody is a potentially murderous piece of garbage strung out on heroin right now outside of your house, that doesn't mean that's who that person's going to be even tomorrow. That tomorrow might be the day they get their lives together and become a productive human being again. Um, that is an interesting thought and, and one that's definitely worth mulling over. I uh, We had a fire alarm go off the other night randomly, I think because the battery was low and my wife kind of slaps me in bed to get my attention because the fire alarm's going off and whatever dream I was having at that moment, I woke up in just a naked rage and was like tormenting through the house, just Hulk smashing everything to go fight the the enemy in my living room before I finally woke up enough to find out it's a fire alarm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's something I, I feel like maybe I could benefit from because uh, I definitely think that if there's a threat in my house, my, my instinct is no holes barred pretty quickly. And I guess when you're in the house, it's probably too late. It probably is an appropriate reaction to just go into smash mode. But but you're right. There are preparations you can take. If you're really concerned about safety, there are things that are safety related that don't have to be offensive weapons. You can can look for ways to secure your house and the people around you. Um, And there's ways to do that. I mean, even just situationally of knowing the situation you're in with your loved ones. I thought that when we uh, first 
the foster shooting happened, um, one of the first things that stood out to me is like, man, you have a, a significant other in a wheelchair that you're taking to this volatile situation. Like, just think about the the area you're going into and the decisions you're making and the people that you're impacting around you. I, I think that's a, that's an interesting point. I don't really have a point to uh, punctuate at the end of that long rant I just went on, but I liked the the thought experiment you let me ramble through just now. Yeah, most definitely. But also, life is short. Take your paraplegic wife to the protest. <laughs> <laughs> I have no good answers for anybody. That's the best. <laughs> I think. What's what's really interesting, kind of a a way to keep moving this conversation forward, is that there was a study. Let me find it. Um, I pulled it up and I lost it. Uh, so there was uh, quote. So Missouri has seen a, dra- a, a drastic rise in gun deaths since adapt since adopting the law. Talking about the stand your ground law that was uh, uh, ratified in twenty sixteen. According to a February 2022 study published by the journal JAMA Network, open. Don't know who they are. Don't know what their credibility is. I'm just quoting it right now. Um, These findings suggest the adoption of the Stand Your Ground laws across the United States were associated with increases in violent deaths, death that could have been potentially avoided, the researchers conclude. And I think that that's a very interesting avenue of the Stand Your Ground that isn't being examined by let's say our side because i don't want to like draw sides and and put ourselves on fences but there is something to be said though about when you have this legal doctrine of stand your ground especially in specific cases because the missouri state law specifically states that you do not have the duty to retreat when 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 you're in your residence and that is one thing about when you start looking at kind of like the law of self-defense as uh, from like a 30,000 foot view, there's like five elements that you have to establish. And one of them is that your lethal use of force was the last and absolute resort. So you had to exhaust all other options before lethal force is actually legally justified. And in some specific nuances of state law, that is removed and it makes you wonder too then about what could be avoided if if you knew that you didn't have just that legal standing where it's like i get to just do this because i have stand my ground law on my side or rather if i don't try to de-escalate or i don't have the duty to retreat or if i have to exercise my duty to retreat then what and it just goes oh sorry so no no that's all go ahead of those five criteria which one of them has to deal with the ethnicity of the person you kill i think that's i think that's six a it's it's kind of like it's not like openly spoken but it's It's more like a general guideline between the lines yeah it's there look guys we're pushing for affirmative action right now and i'm trying to increase the number of asians being shot so you know if happens to be asian you actually don't need to be in danger (laughs) we need to pump those numbers up man rookie numbers (laughs) but um i would be curious to actually see like um i don't want to like talk shade on jama right now um but i'd like to see a legitimate study because they included suicides in that study and um oh you so you've heard that off the top of your head you know yeah yeah the jama study gets gets cited a lot um you know they have it based on like 
state outcome and nationwide. And unfortunately, they didn't differentiate. They used gun deaths. And um, I don't actually know. Well, that's a shame. It is a shame. It is. I, I wonder, I too, the, the controls within that of like, yes, gun violence probably obviously is going to go up when you give people the, the legal right to defend their home with, with lethal force. But what are the other violent crimes around that? Were there things like burglary that went down? Were there things like rape that went down? Um, not saying that I know for a fact that they did, but uh, it's it's easy to manipulate statistics. And uh, like you were already pointing out, they obviously didn't do the simplest step of removing suicides because they wanted those numbers to be nice and high for this study because they have a political agenda behind it. Yeah, and you know, not to like also make them look horrible, horrible, but one of the things that um, makes these studies harder to do is it's very easy to get gun death data. It's a lot harder to differentiate by like circumstance, type, what happened. I mean, usually you can break it down to, um, you know, death by police because the police will report how many people they shot. Um, you can also break it down to, um, uh, what was the other one? Um, legitimate cases of self-defense. That data is like easy to find because it's court data. You know, how many of these uh, cases are overturned through self-defense? There's a number at the end of every year. Um, suicide data is easy to find. You can break that out. But then after that, you have a bunch of other things. Accidents, they're hard to figure out. Um, an accident could be a murder, might not be. An accident could be a suicide, it might not be. Um, and then there's just the general, like there are people who get shot and no one knows why. Uh, was it gang violence? Was it murder? Um, was this an accident? Was it suicide? And the gun just fell down like a, a storm drain. Um, and you know, it gets very difficult at that point. That's one of the reasons why a lot of the times these studies just kind of do gun deaths. And, you know, it might seem politically convenient for the left because then they're like, well, look how big the number is. But, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think every single time a study comes out like this, it's because they're actually intent on creating data that's like purpose built for the left. It's just laziness in all honesty. Um, but I'd be very curious, like you, Logan, to see, um, you know, what, what happened to the crime rate after that happened? How many home invasions occurred after the law was passed? How many shootings occurred during home invasions uh, where the homeowner was shooting compared to the previous ones, blah, 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 blah. And I don't, I don't know if anyone's doing research like that because it's just, frankly, it's just too hard. I mean, who wants to work more than eight hours a day? Nobody, man. <laughs> just, That's fair. And what's your big payoff at the end of that? What, there's no monetary incentive for being the person that puts all that together. So you kind of have to be politically motivated with an agenda to want to do any of that research. And then you've bastardized the research before you started because you're looking for the the outcome rather than the data. Yeah. What if what if there is though? And maybe this is like an unfors like an unfilled market, a, a hole in the market that isn't being serviced where if you were to do such in-depth long-term longitudinal studies that every right-wing media, every gun like NRA, like I don't, I feel like there probably would be a lot of money potentially at the end of that where anybody that wanted to argue against the mainstream media narrative could then pick up your your research and blast it as like, no, actually, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the concept of a parallel economy emerging, right? You know, if one section of the economy gets too stultified to the point where it's unusable for a significant chunk of the population, then there's always like an economic, um, what's the word, opportunity for someone to step in and fill it. But I guess the, like, the main question is like, how lucrative would it actually be? 
Um, I know there is like the small arms survey, which is like a Swiss uh, corporation who does um, studies that are more helpful to the right wing that usually end up getting quoted. Um, so stuff like, um, you know, there's that figure of like 2 million self-defense. Uh, it's too many times guns are used in self-defense, not like firing, but just, you know, drawn, used as a threat um, or sometimes shooting at someone or killing them. And um, like, that's how many times it's estimated that happens. And that, that all comes from like one survey from this Swiss company called the Small Arms Survey. Um, but I don't know how much, how valuable that is to them. I don't know if like that ends up being like a big market for them just being quoted like that. Um, you know, do they get money? Does something turn back to them or is it just something? Yeah, I guess that's, that's where my difficulty is on it is I don't, I don't know exactly how you begin to monetize a study like that. How do you, you know, you can, you're not exactly doing a subscription base of like <laughs> who wants yeah. to, to be in the club here because <laughs> one guy yeah. subscribes and leaks it and then your study's out there and who gives a shit anymore. <laughs> Exactly. I guess that's the get, problem. Is you don't get. Although kicked. maybe if, maybe if you do that on the front end, if you're on uh, on whatever GoFundMe and you're getting all the conservative gun nuts on there, you might be able to raise a little bit of money for. Oh yeah, if you're planning this project, please. Yeah, you might, and you know, there's something we could say too about putting our money where our mouths are. Um, a lot of times we get data that tends to like lean left or just kind of obscures the picture, and it gets funded because like there are entities who can use this, like um. I'm trying to remember who it was who funded the JAMA study. I don't remember. Um, I know the CDC funded a study very similar to this just because they wanted data on gun violence in general. And like the study ended up coming out severely flawed, but like the CDC wanted numbers like that. So they got the numbers they wanted. Um, do we ever like do our own propaganda campaigns where we say, hey, I want these numbers. Come on, how much do they cost? And like, I, I asked that question like half in jest, but like in all seriousness, like there's a major failing in propaganda from the right wing. Like we just are not really sufficient in that, in that sense. And, you know, I, I like to think back to like um, the art of like the 1700s and the 1600s, you know, um, Florence flourished. There's a million artists who popped out of this tiny city, which is the size of a freeway overchange in 70 years. Uh, Michelangelo, Botticelli, you can go on with names and names and names. And most of that was funded because like there were a bunch of rich people in town who made money trading shit. And we're just like, I don't know what to do all the money. I'm just going to pay this dude to paint the Sistine Chapel ceiling. We'll see what comes out. And you know, all the art came out because people were willing to fund it. Like, do we just need to fund our own studies just to have like right wing databases we can quote? <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> well, that seems like a little bit of a radical view to think that all of this money and capital could create an environment that would be encouraging for artists. I thought the way that artists came about is that we all became communist. And when we were starving and found that place of hunger within ourselves, we created art. Yeah. The artistic hunger. It's the best kind. <laughs> there is, there's actually, there's uh, something really interesting about that where when we start talking about what do we value as a society? And I know, I know it pops up even in the political compass test, where it's like, what is the place of art where it makes you wonder if we valued subsidies in the same sense, like instead of like subsidizing oil and gas and uh, solar power and electric batteries and whatnot, like what if there was a subsidy for Dairy art? Farms. What if there was a subsidy for um, artistic endeavors, for music, poetry, because that was, I studied abroad in Florence, and that's, I loved being there, because there was just so many things to do, 
there was there were more museums that you could go to every little central square that you stumbled into had a church that you could go into that had just its own unique rich history and you're right and that was all subsidized by the rich of the of the area because that's what they valued and it makes it makes me wonder about where is this now this is like going on a deep different tangent but it's like where is capitalism failing us in a lot of ways where it's like uh like it's almost like late stage capitalism quote unquote but what are we missing out because the market incentives aren't immediately present but they are there for the but they are present for the long-term soul of a community of a nation of of a group of people and it just it just makes me wonder like what if we valued things differently how would we uh, how would we behave differently i know it's such like an open ended like esoteric i do at some point there i think it's it's less about your economic system though and more about the culture within it and a lot of these things like these desires to build these beautiful museums to represent what this country was what Italy had going on and these things that were built hundreds of years ago. Uh, they're all from this same long-term culture. We're in America. We're the kind of this hodgepodge group of non-homogenous people who don't really all have the same culture. We kind of have the same internet culture bringing us together, but we're kind of figuring out our own things. And we have a very new culture. And I mean, we do have people who sprout up things like uh, you can go out there to the Amarillo, Texas and look at the Cadillac Museum where they put all the Cadillacs upside down and the because those are that's about how old our history is as a country. That's kind of what I spray our painted cultural... those. I like those. <laughs> <laughs> I I put a penis on those too, for sure. <laughs> well, are you both ready to be severely disappointed? Yes. Oh, Logan raised his eyebrow. Okay, he might be ready as well. Um, so we do subsidize art and it just sucks. That's like the big, <laughs> um, you know, as you, all things government funds. Yeah, exactly. So if you get on like your favorite search engine and you search for museum subsidy, art subsidy, NPR subsidy, uh, public broadcasting subsidy, uh, you can find millions of it. I mean, within the COVID bills, there were there were subsidies specifically for certain museums that were just closed. They were closed during COVID and they still got like several million dollars for operational expenses. And it's like, I don't understand how those two go together. Like the building shut down, you're not running AC, you're really just paying taxes, but it's a government building anyway. So are you paying taxes? Right. I mean, yeah. No. Like, well, that's a, uh, and that was almost, almost the episode we launched into today, but I just learned about the uh, Missouri cheese mines or, or caves. Are you aware of these? <laughs> the cheese caves? Yeah. yeah it's all uh, like this, this giant cave of like trillions of dollars worth of cheese at this point that they've been storing underground in the limestone vaults of, uh, oh, I forgot the town in Missouri now, but it's just this, the story of like, Oh, there's a uh, dairy's inflated. We should control the cost of dairy. And then mm -hmm. dairy farmers stop producing as much dairy as they should. And they're like, oh, there's a giant shortage of dairy and dairy's through the roof. Uh, we have to start subsidizing the, the dairy and bring it down. And, and then eventually you have this thing where the government's paying for dairy farmers to overproduce milk that there is no market for anymore that they have to convert to cheese to put in a cave in the middle of Missouri for and spend trillions of tax dollars to have cooling systems that go deep underground to make sure that this giant cheese mine stays good for decades <laughs> for to what end other than it's just a pit of tax money getting poured out into it. 
Absolutely. It's the most American thing ever. Like Canada's got their strategic maple syrup <laughs> reserve and America has got their strategic <laughs> cheese reserve in caves deep underground. Uh, I, I'm sure there's a stat out there. I would love to see how resilient our cheese reserves are to nuclear bombing. You know, what kiloton level of explosion could they take and still be intact? I'm sure <laughs> it's a number that's way too big. <laughs> I'm sure they've considered it because they were smart enough not to put the cheese reserves in Wisconsin. They they moved them to Missouri, uh, which is distinctly part of the tradition. South. <laughs> <laughs> I had to aim for the center of the country. It's the most strategically safe. But um, you know, when we start talking about subsidies for art, I, I think what we're really missing here is like private patronage. Um, you know, obviously the government subsidizes art. We're just going to get like shitty blocks and squares, like. Uh, people will hate me for this, but here in Houston, there's like a Rothko museum to like Philip Rothko or whatever. His art is dog shit. It's literally just like, oh, I painted a yellow square um, and there's a blue circle above it and I filled them in. And people are like will tell you it's all about like reductionism and it's a, a critique on art itself. It's meta. But honestly, it's just dog shit subsidized by the government. And that's why we got. Yeah, dog if you if know, I have to read multiple paragraphs to appreciate your art, I don't think your art's that good. Exactly, dude. It's like people who get tattoos and they have to explain them to you. And I'm like, just stop. You've already fucked up. If I can't look at it and be like, whoa, that's cool. You're done. <laughs> just get out of yeah, here. I already know the backstory to it. You make bad decisions. That's the backstory. <laughs> it's like, hold on. I'll just read the quote that you got tattooed on yourself. I'm sure. <laughs> it's like no, no, translated Mandarin. <laughs> Uh, above the barbed wire around the the, the forearm or the bicep it's actually tribal because i'm 3.4 percent maori you know i've got to represent (laughs) (laughs) oh man but um, but anyways i'll finish my point here real quick i think if we get private patronage of the arts which is like people who genuinely just want to support arts privately, I think we'll get much better art. Like an individual can find something that really speaks to them and say like, hey, I want to support this artist and then do it. Whereas the government is just not capable of doing that. Even if they had like the smartest people working, it just doesn't work. The government just doesn't function in a way where they could have any sort of like perception and appreciation of aesthetics. Um, but I know we've like derailed here. Was there like one other case you want to talk about or did we want to continue the cheese cave conversation? <laughs> <laughs> there is there is one other case but i'm also okay with talking about cheese <laughs> all right well i guess i'll ask one question then so uh the other case that's uh we haven't discussed yet does it add any like nuance to this conversation about the um the stand your ground law or anything like that or did we already cover it with kansas i think it's really I, I, similar to the kansas city one it's I, i'll these are the these are kind of the facts as we know it. So there was some there's a car full of uh, young young um, young adults, right? The victim is twenty in this case uh, that pulled into a driveway, wrong driveway, trying to find a friend's house, turned around, and then um, the person came out of their house and fired two shots. One hit the car, the other hit the 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 young lady who was fatally wounded. Damn. It did sound like, I think the, to add a little more context there, there at least was some, apparently there was like a party going on. So there were cars that were going up and down the street, a motorcycle had been revving his engine. And I think there were several cars pulled into this gentleman's driveway. Uh, although it does sound like all of the shots were fired as cars were exiting his driveway, uh, which makes it pretty hard to justify the stand your ground law at that point. 
Uh, and I think also a really important distinction in this one of why it's not like the Kansas City one is that uh, this was a white victim. So obviously it's a <laughs> young white woman. <laughs> yeah, no, true, though. True. I mean, the most infallible demographic of all young white women. <laughs> oh, man. It's like that Patrice O'Neill bit about that woman who got like abducted in Aruba. I can't remember her name. Uh, Natalie Holloway. And it was all over the news forever. And like, you know, he was asking members of the audience and they're like, do you remember the name? And everyone's like, Natalie Holloway. They all knew. But then he was like, hey, there's this black girl who also got abducted. Uh, <laughs> anybody know about this story? <laughs> like, <And there's> like <laughs> crickets. Uh, shit. Tell me you're racist for that. Tell me you're racist. <laughs> well, I mean, look, man, we all live in glass houses. I'm not the one who's going to throw the first stone. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I think that's the main parallel and kind of the important part about it is both of these, uh, and specifically more the Kansas City one, because it was a young black man and the the Black Lives Matter protesters are threatening to mobilize, but they both uh, immediately have jumped to this uh, stand your ground or castle doctrine kind of thing of this. It's this emboldenment of the idea of self-defense that's, you know, I think really hard to justify when you're shooting people in the back, but obviously that's a uh, that's gotten people off before with that self-defense. And I, I think that's an important component of it is how is it actually uh, enforced and don't uh, get ahead of ourselves where we have people who are ready to go take to the streets and start protesting and burning down buildings because of this. And it's like, guys, this happened a week ago. This guy might go to prison for life in six months. Can we wait and see if the case actually, you know, let's see. Let's give the court system its chance as much as we have our gripes about it to actually get this right before we decide to mobilize and burn down our uh, local businesses. Yeah, it's such a double-edged sword on that one because we are so, because there's a lot of things about the justice system that really grinds my gears. I mean, dude, the whole thing about Clarence Thomas and there's something, there's like a specific carve out for personal hospitality even though that he has his personal hospitality trips through the tune of like if you would have priced it out on the open market five hundred thousand to six hundred fifty thousand dollars and the supreme court decided that um all of these ethical standards apply to every single federal judge all like 810 of them except the supreme court you know like those like those those gripes get um get elevated but then there's also like the little details that i think that it's important for us to stop and slow down where i know a lot of people were outraged that the fact that um the gentleman that shot the young black man in kansas city was released um however there's a missouri state law that says that you can only hold somebody for 24 hours and if you have not charged them with a crime within that 24 hours you have to let them go and there's there's an exercise that I think that we all would, we should all really delve into when it comes to the criminal justice system, where if you wouldn't want there to be exceptions of the law for you in, I guess, like the negative aspect, so to speak, right? So it's like, there's a 24 hour holding period, but you've done so something so heinous that, oh, I don't know why they would ever release him. Like, how could, you know, if you don't want to be held for more than 24 hours in that um, in that particular instance where they haven't charged you with a crime, then you shouldn't want that for anyone else. And Andrew Branko, the guy of like law of self-defense, um, he talks about that even in the Chauvin trial, where if you can expect a fair trial for the worst of us, 
then the rest of us have no hope whatsoever. And I think that it's always something just before. What 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 do you guys say? I'm so curious. I don't want to interrupt, man. It's just um the last episode with Jamie Kane where we were talking about the but I did have breakfast meme. <laughs> 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 You want someone to like think through and put themselves in someone else's shoes. <laughs> just but I did have no okay, that's yeah, fair. Yeah. That's really funny. It is, <laughs> it is amazing. Like, People have trouble. We got you, the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> That is terrifying. I've quoted that to so many people since we shot that episode of like how many people cannot understand a hypothetical situation. And in that same degree here, we're like, you have to understand all of these court cases set precedent, guys. The, the reason they can't hold you indefinitely without charging you is because used to the government would hold you indefinitely without charging you because that was the easiest way to get you to shut the fuck up when you were saying naughty things. And there's a good reason we don't want them to have that precedent that they can just keep you. And I understand in this situation, it sucks that this guy shot a young 16 year old black kid and then just gets to walk home and, and potentially is a flight risk. And it's like, what is being done? I understand the frustration, but you have to step, step back and understand that there are protections within the system. As much as the government loves to roll over those as much as they can, we need to protect those protections against overreach of the government. Even if in this one particular case, you wouldn't like it to go that way because Oh, well, the circumstances of this are a little bit different there. Perhaps we can improve upon what the precedent should be, but you cannot tear down the precedent that protects us from horrible overreaches of the people in power or those people in power will begin to bastardize the system. You know, I will say this. I think I do understand why the left goes out and protests before the court case even gets heard. Um, like lately, the legal system has been very, very cowardly. In the sense that if you make things too difficult for them, they'll just kind of like fold and roll over. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the left has learned a very important lesson, which is just make a big fuss, protest, tell the, the children who don't have prefrontal cortexes yet to go out and like tear some shit up. And unfortunately, it seems like a lot of times the justice system will just kind of fold. Uh, that's the lesson they're learning here. And I don't know how we undo that lesson. You know, there's it'll take a long time of not folding before eventually that stops happening. And I don't yeah. know how it gets done. No, that, that's actually very interesting. Cause there was in my mind, I had something that's almost, um, I don't know if it's even like counters that or whatnot, but there's, I always struggle with the, with like the legal system in the sense of, I I'm so frustrated with it, but then I also become like, it's like, Oh, well, at least it's like working the way it's intended to be because you can look at the uh the recent uh run through of that abortion of uh, the abortion drug that was um so the plaintiffs took it to a district that um a district judge that they knew that was going to side with them the district judge said that well the fda because of these like very weak legal technicalities does you know maybe doesn't have the authority to no, you know, they're like leaning on all of this like bad precedent. And so essentially for a small time, it's like all of a sudden, like this drug is now banned for all intents and purposes. And so then that's appealed up to the, um, I want to say it's the third circuit court of appeals, but I'm not, I'm not sure on the exact uh, specifics of it. And everybody thought that, well, this is a very conservative court of appeals, like what's going to happen. And they reached uh, a, like maybe not like the perfect verdict, but a reasonable verdict. It was like, well, this is clearly an overstep of the law. 
but you guys have an interesting case in at least this particular aspect. So we're going to stay it. So then at that point, that's then elevated by the Biden DOJ to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court hears the case and be like, yeah, no, that district judge is full of shit. None of this matter, like, like the standing, and this is in the this conservative Supreme Court that wants to trample on all of your rights. Looked at this and be like, I don't know. This is a big overreach of what you would establish as like law and judicial, like um their their authority as a judge. And th- so there's like these glimmers of hope, but it's also like, I don't know, to your point though, that we are we're learning all of the wrong lessons. And I think that that might be like the bigger theme of what I've been thinking about in life in general is that the incentive system and the honeypots that have been set up are teaching us all of the wrong lessons. There's no, like, we're not rewarding good behavior. We're rewarding bad behavior and bad behavior begets bad behavior. And then the counter to that is even worse behavior. And there's no mechanism either via the market or the legal system, or whatever institution you want to lean on, no matter where you land on the political spectrum, to actually try to correct, I don't know, behavior as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. And if we even like lean back to some of the conversation we were having earlier in this episode, um, I feel like a lot of judges are more concerned with having an extra day of life than actually like living and doing something worthwhile. And um, that's why I think they end up taking the easy route. You know, I think a lot of people see that like, oh, look, they protested, they went to the judge's home. Maybe I'm not gonna do that because I don't want people at my home. But you know, from where I'm sitting, I don't think anyone should be running for judge if they aren't willing to have like a mob outside of their home. I mean, the whole point of being a judge is that you interpret what someone else wrote on the law. You don't get to like write what makes you feel good. There's a quote from, uh, what's his face? The dude who got, um, Sorry, the dude who died peacefully at that hunting lodge, um, Antonin Scalia, um, he has a quote saying that like he only knows he's reached the right verdict if even he's a little unhappy with it. Um, I butchered it. I'm sure there's a real quote out there somewhere. But I, mean, I think that's like the actual role of a judge is like you have to interpret and make yourself unhappy by what you find. If you're always happy with your rulings, then you're definitely doing something wrong. You know, it's not a, a place to go and be comfortable and happy. And I, I think a lot of judges are just in places trying to be comfortable and happy. And I'll avoid getting too personal here, but um, I'm in the middle of like a horrible civil case. And um, last year in May, I got to sit in front of a judge and before I got to make my case, you know, they, uh, they quoted some like bullshit procedural thing that stopped me from reading the evidence. But the judge actually looked at the evidence anyway. And he said, after the case, um, when I was being dismissed and like they basically said, fuck you, he said like, wow, you know, you really got a case here. I just don't want to make precedent. And I was incredibly pissed at this man. Um, I, I think he thought that he was being friendly and nice to me, but all I saw was just cowardice written all over his face. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I'll stop talking here because I'm going to say some things I shouldn't. Is it any consolation that the executioner agrees with your cause? To quote no. you. <laughs> <laughs> to quote no. Clerk Chief Substack. <laughs> it was not any consolation at all, man. <laughs> it's been a rough year. <laughs> I'll say that much, man. <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's like we need to do like that uh that Tom Cruise movie where they have the the future seeing crime unit and they have to sequester them from all outside 
influences so that they can only be for their function. Like, and I guess there's a, obviously there's a downside to having a, a ruling class that is completely out of touch with your society, but maybe there's something to that, that like these, if you're a, a Supreme court judge, maybe this is a position where it's like, okay, you get to go live on Supreme court judge Island where nobody's uh, allowed to influence your decisions and your local Walmart doesn't get caught up in flames or a guillotine show up on your front yard. If you make a decision that you believe is morally correct, that the mob doesn't particularly like. You know what? That's an interesting thought experiment. Um, who do you think would sign up for a job like that? Let's say the island's like luxury island. You get to go to the Bahamas and some shit. There's beaches. So Clarence Thomas. Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> I think uh, money is. I think no uh, I think Little St. John's is still for sale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? Right, you you have access to the underground uh, Byzantine uh, thing that he's built to trap the children in. I'm sure it'd convert into like a really fun hot tub complex, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, i took a i took a wrong turn in the rape catacombs yesterday and i got lost (laughs) oh my god you know what i hate quoting movies so fucking often but um if you guys haven't seen um oh it was a horror movie that came out last year i can't remember the name uh justin long's in it it's uh it's in detroit and it shows like you know the abandoned side of detroit it's great um oh dude i'm killing it that i can't remember the name of this movie but uh i'll, I'll drop it it's whatever but it reminds me the rape dungeon it reminds me a lot of that movie the rape dungeon <laughs> um i'll actually look the movie up so i don't like ruin people <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm sure everybody's dying to make sure they see that rape dungeon scene that you got there so lighten up their friday nights <laughs> uh, it was a great movie i love horror movies it's one of the few good ones i've seen um <clears throat> Uh, there is a, a loss what is it one more time barbarian um for anyone out there who loves horror movies this was a great watch i i laughed my ass off during the entire movie and uh it shows the post post-apocalyptic side of detroit in a very interesting way they filmed the entire thing in basically an abandoned section of detroit um they built one house in this abandoned neighborhood so it's like one nice house and it's like an airbnb house (laughs) you know who's dumb enough to stay in an airbnb without looking at the the google maps and seeing what the neighborhood looks like well apparently a lot of people yeah yeah and the movie is basically about that and it's oh it's choice man i love it (laughs) but sorry i distracted what were we talking about uh the thought experiment of judge island oh yeah, yeah yeah what sort of person do you think would apply for the job knowing that they'd be on this island all expenses paid but they can't leave like let's say we shoot them if they leave like it's just a firing squad around the island nonstop. that is interesting because you probably immediately are increasing the amount of candidates who don't have uh children at least oh i, I would i would think that's a that's a so you probably have a little bit of a sway away from traditional family values maybe because you're getting people who don't want to leave a family or people that skew on the, on the flip side of that, that would love to be able to raise their children on said Island away from society with the con, you know, like kind of free from the consequences of society. See, that's a, that's a semantical question though, to re letting the kids go to the Island or do you have to go with the other nine judges and sit in your hooded robes all day? I think the kids are stuck on the Island. Otherwise, I think the kids go in the Island with them. Like, I'm pretty they, sure they already have facilities on that island for kids. So oh <laughs> we're not talking about Rape Island, Logan. <laughs> I'm stuck on Little St. John's now. 
<laughs> okay, this is reminding me of something. Logan, you might be familiar with this. Um, in Axum in Ethiopia, there's a church that they believe they have the... Um, Ark of the Covenant? Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant there. And um, there's one person there whose job is to watch the Ark of the Covenant. He's the only person allowed in the room. Um, and it's a job for lifetime. You can't leave the job. You can't leave the room. It's just you're appointed and you're stuck in the room forever. And uh, what's his face? Um, the dude who wrote the books, uh, I'm spacing because I've had like- Graham a, Hancock? Yeah, Graham Hancock interviewed one of the guys about like his experience there. And um, you know, he said he was forced into the job. He wasn't allowed to like, like it wasn't his choice. It was everybody else's choice. And maybe that's what we'd have to do. It's one of these things where it's like, okay, your kids are old enough. You've got a great grasp of the law. We're forcing you off to Death Island where you're going to just be a judge from here, here on out. Um, your kids are grown. They'll hopefully survive on their own. Uh, your every need will be taken care of. It's a tropical island. You just can't leave. Um, and I think that'd be an interesting system. It's kind of like the, the Roman idea of like, um, well, you're in charge now because the barbarians are at the gates. Um, good luck. You know, it's it's a similar, similar kind of like... <laughs> life and i think there's certain a certain person that might appeal to you know 65 60 your kids are adults now and you want to actually give back to society like some form of service um you know lifetime service is, a, is an interesting concept we already give the judges lifetime service you know it's basically a job you exit in a box why not yeah. just step it up just a little bit more that gave me an, an image uh, specifically talking about like picking the best candidates for it. Could you imagine the campaigns that are just run in reverse where it's like self-slandering campaigns to not be sent to the island? <laughs> like I was I was in a pretty rough frat in college, guys. I don't know if y'all dig into any I, of that. I like beer. <laughs> I like beer. I went on a date with a woman once and afterwards she said that she felt rather uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> i forgot that we were making jokes i thought you were about to launch into a real life story there i was like where are you where are you taking this one here no that wasn't a real life story <laughs> it does it does make you wonder about the the caliber of person that you would get if you change the incentives and the outcomes of said incentives where knowing that seeking a supreme court justice appointment meant that you had to spend the rest of your life and how many people would be willing to actually step up and acknowledge that and it does make you wonder though like to take this thought experiment if, if you like start to follow it down different because there's different logical conclusions you can come to one of them is that you would exponentially increase the caliber of people that you would have serving in that position because they're willing to forego everything about their old life to sit on the island and just deliberate. And in a lot of ways, it's almost what you want your judge to be, right? Like you don't want your judge to have a name and an address and right. these. Yeah. Ideally they don't have anybody at home. Even you don't really want them to even have you know, a wife you, or you to, a husband to, or, or at the very least, you kind of want them to be anonymous when they go to this Island so that the, the mobs of people that want to influence court cases can't go find their kids and wife and, and throw the fit on that lawn and still influence them. I guess if you turn off their electricity, they have no idea that that's happening back home. So all they can do is deliberate, but <laughs> coconut phone doesn't call off the Island. So <laughs> coconut phone's a landline. 
it does make me wonder too, because like um, one of the Catholic rules was that like certain priests you couldn't marry, you couldn't have children, you couldn't have sex or anything like that. And I wonder if part of that rule was to like, because I think there was a point in time where the church like controlled like the kingdoms of like medieval Europe. And maybe that was kind of the thought experiment there. You know, people said like, oh, you're marrying God, the church is your wife and whatnot. But maybe it was more of just, um, you know, getting people to be as selfless as possible. Uh, you know, or if you're a, a big fag about like new media, it's like the wall, uh, you, you know, you're on the, the watch, you've taken the night's vow with Jon Snow or whatever. Um, right. Gay, but <laughs> <laughs> Don't father no children. Yeah, yeah, there is something to that, though, that like, and I, I don't know if I hate that idea, though. I mean, if you are going to be bestowed upon you the power of government, the power of rule over all of us, why shouldn't that come with a sacrifice, a significant one? That if you are really going to be put in the charge of the way we spend our money, the way we inflate our dollar, the way we create war throughout this entire world, then maybe it's not ridiculous to think I only want somebody who's willing to sacrifice who they are as a citizen and become one of these kind of out of the the touch of society of the above reproach in a certain way. If you if you truly are so much better than the rest of us, then maybe you need to also be disconnected from those who might influence you that are not as lofty a thinker as you are. What also makes you wonder too, then about if you had that disconnect, would we still function in the same right? Like, would there be the inflation of the dollar? Yeah, would there be the perpetuation of, uh, you know, forever wars would, would government, because if you change it at that core, like you've changed the incentives, right? Nancy Pelosi has every incentive to insider trade because she went in there as a nobody and gets to leave as a hundred millionaire, right? There's there, the incentives are stacked and that's right. like, so there is no, and, there is no leaving. Well, are you putting the Congress on that well, I think, well, in the, in the, at least in Logan's example, because like the I like the idea of taking them all and putting them on an island, even if we don't let them rule us anymore. Let's just take all the Congress people and push them away <laughs> and put them on. Get, I, we could we could use with a purge of all think, of the current politicians. I think another interesting thought experiment would be though is like, would you consent to a government knowing that that was what they had to go through, that they don't get to go into Congress? whoever they are and leave millionaires that they don't get to enrich their pockets and insider trade. How much more willing would you be to consent to government and a representative, um, a constitutional representation if that was the consequence that if you want to serve in Congress, if you want to be in the executive branch, if you want to be in the judiciary, these are the terms of the sacrifices that you have to make. I had that presented to me recently. I thought it was a really poignant way of like pursing out how pe if people have thought deeply about subjects before. Uh, and it was a lot of like questions you can ask to like gauge that. Um, and the one I really liked is like, what bit of information could I provide to you that would change the way you feel about this topic? And if the answer is nothing, then you haven't thought very deep or you're so dug in dogmatically to your, uh, your, theology that you're not willing to even pursue or, or visualize another one um but i guess it's kind of in that same ilk of question of like even as anarchists and anti-state people and people who are governments the the number one driving force of all bastards in this world like what what is it that could be changed about the government if, if we had a magic wand and everything could be set right what would make you accepting of the government boot 
and maybe that's a, an interesting step in it is number so one is let's get the monetary incentive that's a whole there. podcast in itself <laughs> and to answer your question matt i still wouldn't accept it just based on like oh they're on a luxury island now so, i would need to see them actually do stuff that like felt representative of me before i was like well okay maybe they've got my interests at heart because you know they could end up on the island and still end up being bastards like who knows maybe that yeah. would yeah, you want to possibility. You want to see what kind of statue they build to burn the child effigies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because you know, one thing like we wouldn't have news cameras there. We wouldn't know what they were doing most of the time. Like it could just end up being like an island of child rapists who are like harvesting adrenochrome from like the spinal fluid of like three year olds they've stolen from Haiti, and we're sitting here. Hey, like, oh, well, you guys told me we weren't that. talking about St. John's anymore. Everything's about St. John's. <laughs> but, you know, what would be really interesting is if, like, once a year we had our own version of the purge where we sent, like, a dude with a coin. He just flipped the coin in front of everyone, told them to call it. And if they look scared, just pop them. You know, maybe <laughs> that, that would actually make them better off. You know? uh, is this person ready to face death or do they still cling tightly to life? Maybe then we'd have a better government. But maybe the answer is there just is no answer. You know, as anarchists, you know, we like to think about what might make it work. I, I'm a minarchist at heart, if I'm really going to be honest. But same. There probably is cowards. Any... Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to say that out loud. <laughs> Our hearts, not yours. <laughs> But yeah, there, there probably isn't an answer for me. Um, I think the government would just have to be so unobtrusive that I didn't think about it. And at that point, that's when I'm technically consenting because I'm not thinking about them anymore. Um, so if we get there, I think we're golden. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I know that we want uh, we want to try to keep this uh, relatively short and brief, at least in our, our standards. Short and brief is like close to two hours. So um, Mr. Fort Cheap, plug your shit. Oh, what's up? Like yeah, yeah, you're like no, dude. So I edited that podcast, and it's like I did not mean it to be so like I I was so dismissive in that moment, but it was not my intention. <laughs> I listened back to it, and I was like, God, I had this moment as I was listening. It's like you are a fucking asshole, and it is like you as in me. Is like I can believe that I sounded so dismissive in that moment. So I am sorry. Rub <laughs> rub off my cadence on you a little bit laughing my ass off every time i think about that <laughs> Dude, it, it, i didn't mean it. it was like it was such a good conversation i was like nah i think we're good let's just end it up <laughs> but it sounded so oh, man. Dude, I, uh, yeah it was rough i'm sorry you know actually one thing that i enjoy right now is i've got seo like privilege for the word flirt cheap so if you google flirt cheap all one word you'll find all of my shit on the first page i'm there Hell yeah that's the best feeling <laughs> Yeah, we got buried for a little while. There was a Up Against the Mob podcast, yep. which not a little after us, but was much more well-funded. And uh, we're still below them on most of the algorithms, but at least we're on the front page on most of the algorithms now. It's like, thank goodness my face pops up when you Google my exact podcast name. Yeah, and uh, I guess we can talk about this like after we cut, but like um, the more links you'll have like reaching out to y'all's podcast, the more y'all will be able to fight those bastards. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> did you ever plug your shit or are we we ending it before you do again oh, i just told people to like get on the favorite search engine i'm there like, oh that's true there it is um there it is. let yes. me in in a in the spirit of like an olive branch 
and trying to make up for my asshole that I did not mean to you. Yay. <laughs> Go find him on Instagram, Flirt Cheap. Go subscribe to his Substack. I have uh, offered him personal favors, not sexual, but you know, like uh, couches, not, not sexual ski tickets, and whatnot. That uh, <laughs> I am subscribed for free, um, but you should pay. <laughs> Well, uh, Matthew, have you gotten uh, a sufficient value for the dollars you've spent on it? I have. For the zero dollars? <laughs> I actually, no, no, see, those things do cost me money, even though I don't give him direct, you know, it's That's not like a, it's That's not fair. a monthly contribution, like all of that stuff. Barter it, system. There is, there's real tangential value to it. It's like, that's like, do that delicious pork butt. That wasn't free, you know? <laughs> so I did get a free day on the mountain. Uh, lift tickets are not cheap. There was uh, no, I see, they, all... I think the actual one day lift ticket cost was like an entire year subscription. <laughs> I'm not going to think about that though. Cause like, honestly, <laughs> he really should be thanking me a lot more often. <laughs> you just give him a, uh, give him two subscriptions. He can go look on both accounts. I think it is uh, just to make sure we cover all of our bases. I do want to point out to everybody, just because Matthew is not supplying sexual favors for his free subscription, doesn't mean that Flirt's not open to sexual favors for free subscription. So don't be afraid to DM him. Let him know. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, marry into it. I won't judge. <laughs> Married into it. <laughs> excellent well thank you guys for tuning in it's always a pleasure to be with you logan with you mr flirt cheap um it's been too long i think our, our lives are stabilizing enough that you should be getting more consistent content at least that is my hope and intention I know that's logan's as well again thank you flirt cheap for coming on i know that this is very spur of the moment but we always appreciate you go check out the sponsors in the podcast description below we appreciate you we love you um Take everything that we say with a grain of salt or take it with um, all the salt. I don't really care what you do with this information. It is yours. With all that being said, we fight against the mob with people in politics. We'll see you next time.